What are the ethical responsibilities in making a fantasy trade? I'll ask Todd Zola about that and a whole lot more next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, July the 30th. It's show number 36 of the 2021 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll have our feature expert interview with Todd Zola from Masters Ball, Rotowire, ESPN, and SiriusXM, discussing the ethics of fantasy baseball trading, how to analyze the Roto categories to see where your opportunities and risks are, his slumps, pumps, dumps, and jumps, and some other stuff. As well, we'll have our Market Watch Player News reports. Harold Nichols has coverage of the National League, including Trevor Rogers, Tuki Toussaint, Kenley Jansen, and others. And Ray Murphy has news from the American League, including the Minnesota bullpen, activations in Houston, Detroit, and Tampa, possible September pitcher slowdowns, and even more. We'll also have our regular commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Minor League Minute, Baseball HQ Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon looks at St. Louis third base prospect Jordan Walker. In the Frequent Flyer, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Texas second baseman Justin Foscue. And in Extra Innings, I'll be talking about our Roundtable Special Edition coming up on all the trading activity at the deadline. It's another big Friday full edition. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? It's been a major leagues trading frenzy at the deadline. We gotta talk some baseball. I'm keeping a pretty careful track of this year's trades in the week before the deadline because the day after the deadline, which is tomorrow, Saturday the 31st, we're trying something new here at Baseball HQ Radio. It's a special round table edition of the pod looking at the fantasy implications of all the trades that have taken place over the last seven days. We're starting with Monday because we figure all the trades that took place on or before last Sunday will already have been acted upon in the Sunday moves at most fantasy leagues. I'll have a little preview of the big roundtable edition in my extra innings comment in the ninth inning of this show, but in the first inning of this Friday full edition, it's part one of our feature expert interview with Todd Zola from Masters Ball, Rotowire, ESPN, and Sirius XM. Todd, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Yes, yes, sir. Really good to be back with you, PD. What have you thought so far? We're talking on Thursday afternoon, so we're still waiting for the very last minute uh, details, but a couple of big names. Yeah, well, I'm hoping um, this is my first pod with you since we're no longer allowed to use spider cac, so I'm hoping that's not going to matter. Uh, I think I can still get the revolutions going. So far, I mean, it's been a great trade week, but as we were kind of talking a little bit off air while we're getting set up, there's not a lot of, at least at this point, consequential moves in the AL to NL and NL. There's a couple, but there have been, you know, there have been years where if you had the sixth highest fab um, budget, you were getting a good player. Right. There's going to have to be a lot of activity in the next 24 hours for that to occur. And there might very well be, uh, of oh, course, sure. on the uh, National League to American League side, the big prize is probably, so far anyway, outfielder Starling Marte. And yep. uh, you told me you have the hammer in Labor AL, so uh, congratulations on getting Starling Marte, or better. Well, I can get up to the middle of the pack. Yeah, it's uh, been a rough year. I, I lost 
labor has labor's a little different than tout in that you can only get fab rebated uh, for players on the 60 day. So there's not as much uh, return as there is in tout, which if any time a player's on the DL, you can get your money back. I lost Nick Madrigal, which, which was a big one and somebody else. So I, I, I actually have more than a hundred dollars. So I might be able to get two players, but um, yeah, Marte will help. I'm in the middle of the pack. It'll, it might, it might get me to the next level, but you know, it, it, I wish it were better, but I like Marte. I like the, I don't like the park necessarily, but I don't know that Marte is a huge power here to begin with. So I, I, I do like the, uh, the landing point. Oakland's one of those teams that will run if the if the player is capable of running, right? And Marte is. Uh, I do like man that outfield with uh, Marte and Loriano roaming that big outfield there. You gotta like that for the Oakland pitchers. So I think I think it was a great, an interesting move. Is you know Jesus Lazardo. I made a trade earlier in the year in XFL, which is a keeper uh, dynasty kind of hybrid, and I essentially traded a very high priced Jacob Degrom for a low priced Lazardo, which is kind of what the A's and Marlins did. And I took a little flack for it, uh, but I just I just believe in Lazardo long term. And apparently, I mean, I'm kind of I'd like to think the Marlins do too. What do you make of Abraham Toro? He got traded uh, from Houston to uh, Seattle, and he looks uh, like the second coming of uh, well Edgar Martinez, except he plays yeah. third base. <laughs> uh, whatever. He's run into a couple. You know, whatever. He's 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 uh, fattened up a couple of mistakes. Hit a couple home runs. It's uh, I don't think I'm running out to get Toro. I'm I'm not. I mean, he he was playing third for Bregman, Alex Bregman, and I mean Kyle Seager. You know, he's not hitting for average, but he's still hitting for power. And maybe Seager gets moved. I don't know. Probably not at this point. But I mean, you know, Toro's nice. I mean, if it were an AL to NL move, sure he'd be worth acquiring. But I don't think in a mixed league. I don't think it changes his stead at all in a mixed league. It's a fun story. Adds to the adds to the fun of you know the water cooler talk. We can talk at water coolers again. We can use water coolers again. You mentioned uh, that you're in uh, American League labor. Uh, what other leagues are you in, and how are your teams doing? Uh, in you know Tower Wars XFL TGFBI, I'm doing not well in the pub in the leagues I want to do most in, which is by no coincidence the public leagues. And it's not because I you know need to show off or anything. It's just those are the leagues I kind of want to do the best in TGFBI, uh, Labor, Tout Wars, etc. Not doing so well. I'm doing all right in my in private leagues, but you know which may help my bank account. But uh, it's not gonna. I I wish I was doing better in TGFBI. I wish I was doing better in labor and tout wars and, you know, have already begun. What did I do wrong? Cause I, I, you know, I think we've talked about this. I know I've talked about it at first pitch by the fire pit with people. I'm from the school that says 15 people can have, let's call them the baseball HQ projections in a 15 team league. One of the people at the end of the year is going to think you guys are genius. One of them is going to think you're idiots. The other 13 are going to be somewhere in between. So to me, it's not the projections or whatever. It's what you do with them. So, all right, am I questioning my projections? Of course I am. I always do. But I'm more questioning what I'm doing with them. So uh, a little early to make that final judgment, but I didn't do as much as I should have with them this year. In what way? Uh, team construction and just – I think one of the mistakes I made was uh, – and I keep going back and forth on this. 
is I had a bunch of pitchers that I liked, and I waited on pitching, and I had a bunch of pitchers that I liked. We'll call them Brad Keller. And I used him early. And I'm just wondering, should I, you know, if I got these pitchers, all right, I can like them, but should I have waited and not absorbed all the junk in April? And you know, we still trusted that they make it at some point and then put, put him in. But I also liked Ando Desclafani, and I did use him early, and that paid off. So I, I, I kind of keep going back and forth. Maybe I shouldn't be so aggressive with the pictures I like, but then, I, you know, I, so I'm not exactly sure yet. And it, it is such a weird year. Um, I know in auctions, I just got to get out of this middle of the ground. I got to go after the top players. I got to just, whatever, take, hypnotize myself. And spend early and, and not just try to play the middle game like I've been doing. So um, I don't know. We, we what a time to talk about. It. I'm sure. I'm sure. Uh, you know, I won't get drunk at the uh, first pitch forum anymore. But I'm sure. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, the, the lips will loosen at the fire pit. And, uh, and assuming the new place has a fire pit in Mesa, and uh, we'll be some uh, very much looking forward to the uh, to the to the late night chatter uh, at first pitch. Ray told me there's a fire pit. So he wasn't a hundred percent sure, but he was 99% sure that there's a fire pit, which is great news. And it's interesting that you say that you're going to hypnotize yourself to go after more of the big dollar players, because after this year, I'm hypnotizing myself not to do the big money players and only to stay in that middle ground. So I guess a lot of it depends on what your experience has been. Well, what does Gene say? It's not more often than not, it's not why you pick them, but who you pick them or who you pick. Gene McCaffrey, wise yeah, guy. Exactly. You know, it, it, any strategy could work if you pick the right players. <laughs> well, and that's exactly right. But I think the the problem that I've had in most of my teams that aren't doing well, and some one of them is doing fairly good, and the other two are not, is that my top dollar players are not performing or hurt. In the case of Mookie Betts, and of course in a Straight draft league, you have to take a first round player. You can't sure. just pass, obviously, for competitive reasons. Your opponents would probably love it if you did. And you can't, unfortunately, trade your top round picks for middle round picks and, and get rid of your end round picks at the same time. So you have to do something. But in uh, especially in single league formats, I'm just starting to think that it's borderline impossible or at least very difficult to make a, a team with a 35 or $40 player work uh, under any set of roster constructions, unless you get really super lucky. You know, if, if you spend $40 on, as I did on Jose Ramirez, he's actually been pretty close to that in value, but it cost me so many at-bats in the other parts of my roster because I had to roster so many $1 guys at the end the only way around that would have been to not get any good pitchers at all and just go for a whole bunch of $1 guys. And, of course, if your $1 guys are uh, Carlos Rodon and Robbie Ray, you're golden. But if your $1 guys are the usual $1 guys, then you're in real big trouble. No, for sure. And it just, you know, I've had a few years of non-success. So I'm not winning this way. Let's try it a different way. So we'll, we'll see what happens. I mean, it's going to depend on the pool, what happens. We still I mean, we have the equivalent of last season left to go. And we saw what weird stuff happened last year. The, uh, you know, I wish I had a better name off the top of my head to use the good, you know, but Marcelo Zuna, you know, the highs and, and the lows of what Max Muncy did. So there's, there's still a, enough time. I think every team played around a hundred games at this point, which gives us 60 or so left, which is, you know, kind of what happened last year. 
it was uh, more condensed, but it's it's that's that's the time frame we're working with. And of course, in a lot of leagues, people are allowed to try to trade their way to success or from the yeah. middle to the top or from the bottom to the middle or what have you. And that raises an interesting question that you covered this week in your Z-Files column this week. Uh, you discussed the ethics of trading, especially about being an also-ran team, one of the bottom half of the league, making a deal somewhere that could affect the outcome of the race, particularly, I guess, trading with somebody who's at the top. Why does this matter, do you think, in the bigger picture when we're talking about enjoying fantasy baseball and, and playing in leagues? This topic comes up pretty regularly. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's kind of a hot-button topic, and you, you kind of alluded to it in that leagues can be played at a lot of different levels, you know, you know, at a very casual, friendly level up to, you know, high stakes. And in some high stakes, there is trading, especially in keeper leagues. Um, which is sort of not what I'm talking about here because keeper league trading is sort of its own animal, but it, it, it mattered. There are some that don't believe that if you don't have a chance to win, you should not influence those that do have a chance to win. And I mean, I'll give you credit. I know a lot of others have talked about it, but I know we've talked about this and you were kind of leading the charge of the, by not doing anything, you are also affecting the standings. If you can make a trade to improve your team and it's with a top team and you don't make it, you're affecting things. Just the same, you know, you call it indirect, whatever you want to say, but you are affecting the standings by not making that trade. So it, to me, there's a, it's a dicey slope. I think I just mixed metaphors there. A slippery slope. Uh, what, whether to make the trade or not, I've come to kind of a, my own rational or my own way of equalizing things. And it's, it's subjective and I'm sure it's, I don't want to use the word controversial, but I'm sure it's not, not agreed upon by everybody, but, you know, thinking about it a lot over the years, I, I, in my mind anyway, I've kind of come to a way, which I, you know, which I, which is kind of my own philosophy, how I treat it. A big part of how these ethics or morals or, you know, subjective judgments get made are undermined or underpinned by the rules of the league and especially by the incentives that the leagues offer mm -hmm. for participating fully. And Tout Wars is a good example. There's a penalty if you fall, fall down in the points farther down, then you're, once you get below 60 points, you're starting to lose $10 per point in fab for the subsequent season. And it's a really competitive league and you don't want to lose $10 of fab or $20 of fab, or there's somebody in our league, I think, who's in the thirties for points mm -hmm. could lose $250 of fab. That's a really big blow to take going into a future year. And I know that there's arguments two and four about whether you should have any aspect of next year being involved in this year in a uh, redraft league. But f for now, let's just accept that a lot of leagues do provide incentives of one kind or another to improve your team. How can we then turn around and say, you know, we want you to keep playing hard. We want you to keep improving, but you have to constrain yourself in the following ways. You can't deal with anybody at the top of the table. What if the deal is there? Yeah, I don't know that you can legislate it. This is kind of what I was leading to with my a way that I've kind of, in my head, come to the balance. You know, some leagues, you know, as, as listeners know, they the next year's draft order might depend upon the finish. There are ways to, um, you know, uh, incentivize a, t a higher finish. 
So this is this is kind of you know segueing what I was kind of talking about the previous answer. I don't believe all standing points are equal. I think that a standings point, you know, five points at the top to get someone from third to the championship. In we'll use Tout Wars as an example, but it can be extended elsewhere. Is different than five points to save fifty dollars worth of next year's fab. I don't think you can say each team can gain five points with this trade. It's equal. I think the five points to get the championship, you know, are air quote worth more. Now, other people may just say it's five points is five points. Now, this is for me the currency of a trade is the points gained in the standings. It's not the value of the players and anything like that. It's the it's, it's the potential of points gained in the standings. So, the potential to get five to win, the potential to get five. To uh to save you know fifty dollars worth of fab, to me I I don't know that I'd make that trade because I think the the five points that I'm giving to the contender are worth more than the five I'm getting. Does that mean I have to get ten points to make it worthwhile? I, I don't I don't I don't know the number. I I I don't know. And other again, this is just tell words. There's other leagues where the the currency is different. Well, not currency, but the the incentive is different. But that's to me, that's that's how I've kind of in my mind began to think about it is that, you know, by doing this, I'm, I'm making the even a grayer thing because you know, more haze because I'm not I'm not you know fine tuning it. I'm saying, you know, I now have to subjectively figure out what what is equal in points from the bottom to the top. Uh, and now you have to backfill it with your argument about not making the deal. If you don't make a deal. And, and, it, and it costs the team three or four points and maybe you get none, that's, that's, there's an inequity there too. So it's, it's, I don't know that there is an answer. It's a personal philosophy and we're all going to have to struggle. With it. And the answer for me is, you know, stop finishing down low so we don't have to worry about it, but <laughs> we'll, we'll see about that. But um, it's, it's an, you know, for, for, for someone who likes to, you know, spend his day in the spreadsheets it's you know it's it's fun to sometimes kick back and when you drive and kind of think through these things. Do I want to make that deal? Do I want to do that? And I don't know that there's a yes or no. Well, and it's interesting too that a couple of years ago, I think it was the last full year, so 2019, I got in a trade with uh, Howard Bender in the Tout American League league, and we were both yeah. d- fairly fairly well down the raw, down the standings. I was higher than him, but he was like 11th or 10th, and I was. I don't know, fifth or sixth or something like that. And we made a fairly big trade that had fairly big ramifications, but neither of us, even though we were in the bottom half of the standings, so it wasn't directly affecting anybody at the top of the standings. I didn't choose the second place guy and push him past the first place guy. But the result of the trade was that I moved in certain categories and Howard moved in certain categories that affected the overall outcome of the race because I went by the second place guy in home runs, say, and, and uh, Howard maybe went by somebody in saves or ERA or something. And all of a sudden now we're affecting the race, even though we didn't get involve anybody in the race in the trade. And so it seems like if we're going to say, we don't want you to affect the race, then what we're saying basically is the only way you're allowed to do a trade is not only if you've got to avoid <laughs> the top guys, but you have to avoid affecting the categories in which the top guys are playing, and, and especially if they're near you in a clump, which we'll talk about later. Which, is, as you know, is impossible, right? It just can't be done, especially because you don't know what's going to happen. You know, if, we'd make, if we're talking about a trade now, 
so many things can change. So, you know, all right, right now on paper, I'm following that, 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 that plan. But this guy gets hurt. This guy gets traded. Uh, this rookie comes up and, and, and crushes for two months. And suddenly you have affected points that you didn't think you'd affect. So, you, you know, you just, you just don't know. Now, the intricacy, the nuance with that trade, as you know, what had to do with an innings minimum. So this was more than a couple of fab points. This was whether Howard would finish with the innings. And he was, I mean, we're talking, I think we're talking two or $300 worth of fab because he would have lost so many points in the pitching categories. So now, you know, now in Zola's head, now he has to, you know, is $300 worth of fab or $200 worth of fab uh, equal to affecting the top? And that's different than 30 or $40. I mean, two or 300, especially in an only league where, I mean, you know, I can argue that if I don't, if I'm actually, I actually don't mind it when I don't have fab in an only league because it makes me more aggressive because I'm not even thinking about holding it for the deadline. But that's, you know, that's not really an argument not to worry about losing fab. In an only league, you know, losing 20, 25, 30% of your budget, it's huge. So, it, you know, that, that trade was a lot more on the surface, understandable, and one of the reasons why the 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 board let it go, uh, we, we 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 it was deemed a trade a, a good trade. There wasn't anything wrong with it, but um, it just it just adds to the, uh, the 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 math that I have to do in my head when I get these kind of offers myself. Do you do the trade? Do you don't do the trade? I um, I think I was offered one deal so far this year where it would have helped a team in the top part of the standings but it wouldn't help me. So that was an easy say no. Yeah. That's quite a different thing. If you're taking yeah. <laughs> a loss on a trade yeah. and somebody else is taking a win in the first place, it starts to look a lot like collusion. And in the second place, that's just not kosher. Now, one of the ideas that comes up in this discussion, Todd, when we talk about it is there's a lot of fantasy managers out there who take a look at a trade and assess its fairness by the number of name players or the quality of yeah. name players who are involved. So if I offer you, um, I don't know, Liam Hendricks and you offer me Billy Hamilton, somebody in the league might go, wait a minute, that's not fair. Liam Hendricks is a star and Billy Hamilton's a scrub. And if I can make the case, yeah, but if he steals five bases between now and then, I'm going to gain five points in the category and I'm already last in saves or first in saves and it's not going to cost me anything. It's a good trade for me from that point of view. What is the right place for the name player in this whole discussion, if any? Yeah, this, you know, I, I, the, the, I keep hoping that we don't have to talk about this every year, but every year we do. It seems so obvious that the current should, should be, as I mentioned, ability to move in the standings and not value in a vacuum. It shouldn't be, I'm going to, you know, look at HQ's rest of season value and I need to do a trade so that each, each side's being exchanged $32 and it's fair. Or sometimes if it is $32 on either side, it doesn't make the trade fair because as you suggest, one team's going to gain or lose more points that are potentially than the other. I, you know, I wish that everybody just understood that the, the, the measuring stick, the litmus test should be potential to move on the standings and not the names or the, or, or the, or the you know, expected stats attached. Early in the year, it's a different story. A lot of stuff can happen. But we're now at the point where, yeah, as I suggested, weird things could happen to, to change things. But, you know, you, you still have to manage to what you got. And if you feel, you know, Billy Hamilton, Oscar Mercado, Miles Straw, maybe Miles Straw, maybe a little less of a hyperbolic example 
this year because, you know, he's playing every day. So, you know, trading Miles Straw for Liam Hendricks may appear to be silly, but it also may help both. It may help the guy getting steals more. Who knows? It certainly might. And and getting rid of Liam Hendricks might not cost him anything, or he might be acquiring five points to give up one and netting four on, on the transaction, all of which I think is a perfectly legitimate reason to make the trade. You also mentioned another possibility that has come up in your discussions with your Twitter audience and other places about dealing with teams that aren't in contention. And the idea is that if you're out of contention, it's okay to deal with another team that's out of contention. And as I said before, there's two problems. Well, one problem with that is the trade can still affect the race, depending yeah. on how the categories shake out, as you mentioned. But there's another reason. I don't want to deal with the guy who's right around me in the standings because he's the guy I'm trying to pass. If I'm going to make a trade that benefits both teams and I'm in sixth, why do I want to deal with the guy in seventh who's chasing up from behind me or, or the guy in fifth, the guy I'm trying to catch? I don't want to improve him. I want to make a trade that moves him down and me up. And the, the idea that... A, a lot of leagues have, which is as the season goes on, the number of teams you're allowed to deal with gets telescoped closer and closer to where you are in the standings. Doesn't seem to make sense to me because I don't want to deal with those guys. I'm trying to pass those guys or stay ahead of those guys. Right. So it's actually kind of, I don't know, ties into a a Twitter uh, post that I put out before. Uh, There's been a couple of major league trades where teams, where the teams have been interdivision. You mentioned Houston and, and Seattle and Cleveland and the White Sox. And you always hear, how, I don't want to trade within the division. I don't want the guy to come back and bite me. This is kind of the fantasy equivalent. And in both cases, to me, it, the answer is simple. I don't want to categorically ignore dealing with someone ahead of me. If I feel the deal is going to push me past them, then then I'm, I'm going to do it. Now, this is one of those deals where there's a difference in opinion of the players involved of the, of the production. This isn't, you know, some deals you, you, you go in saying, you know, both sides are happy because they both, uh, you know, even, even both, both of the managers can agree that they're both getting help. This is a deal where I think, you know, you, you like a guy more than I do. He's on my team. I like one of your players more than you do. He's on your team. So when we make the deal, I think I'm getting more points than you think I'm getting. I, I won't hesitate to do a deal. With someone adjacent, if that's the case, I, in other words, you know, I will deal. I will do the deal that I feel nets me the most potential points, be it with the person above, below, uh, in the standings. I don't, you know, when I'm looking at who who is a potential dance partner, I don't look at the team above me and say I'm not even going to look at them. I, I will look. I will especially look at them because maybe I feel that I can knock them down. I think that's the right approach. I'm not, and I wasn't suggesting that if I'm in six, I'm not, I'm just ruling out fifth and seventh. I'll deal with them if I think uh, the guy in fifth will foolishly give me enough of a player to to surpass him in the overall standings because that's what it's all about to me. Now, Todd, to give you credit where it's due, a lot of people write columns along these lines every year bemoaning the debate about whether we should trade and with whom we should trade and so forth. And they never offer a solution. And to your credit, sir, you offered a solution. You called it the rolling champion. Explain to our listeners how the rolling champion works and how it would greatly reduce the problem that is the imbalanced trade as far as standing spots are concerned. Yeah, we we talked about this. I don't remember if it was formally or informally 
at a first pitch. And I wish I remembered who's, I, I didn't come up with it. It was suggested. Uh, I don't remember you know, doing question and answer. I don't remember. I just, what, what it basically is, is the, you award, you, you award a yearly winner, right? It, you won a year, you should, whatever it be, jelly beans, you, you deserve to be rewarded. However, there's a bigger reward or an equal reward for the cumulative score over three or four years. So you don't add up the point. I mean, you don't have the stats. You know, if you get 90 points one year and 80 points the next year, you now have 170, et cetera. And whatever it be, three years, four years, you award the overall winner, whatever you want to call it, the grand champion, to the person with the most points over the extended uh, span of whatever, three or four years. You can do two years if you want, but uh, whatever it might be. But the point being, now your five points doesn't just matter for that year, that gets carried over for two or three or four years, depending upon your league. So, you know, every point matters. I mean, maybe having a little bit of an off year, you get from 60 to 65. It may be that you have a couple of really good years and those extra five points propelled you to the overall championship. Now, I've never done a league of this nature. Um, I, <laughs> As I'm getting older, it's less, you know, it means, you know, <laughs> I don't know, you know, it's, it's uh, like even with dynasty leagues, I'm, you know, am I going to still be uh, as rabid about this in five or six years to, to do it? I think I will be, but you never know. Uh, but still, it, it's something I wish I had tried maybe a little bit when I was younger, because in order to make it worthwhile, you know, it has to be around for four years to get that first champion. But I think it's an interesting twist that if, if anybody's looking for a, you know, it doesn't have to be keeper. It can be for redraft leagues. It it kind of, it, it, it keeps as a as someone who runs a few leagues, you'd like to think that it keeps the uh, the, the team managers stable because they know they can come back with three great years and make up for that one bad one and and still be the grand champion. I think it, it helps you know reduce turnover in the league. I think it's an interesting you know if you don't want to go four years, go three. I think it's an interesting concept. While you were talking about it, something popped into my head. So let's suppose I'm in. Uh, contention for the most recent four years of, of, of play that have happened. And I'm sitting there and I think if I could get five more points, I'm going to win the four year title. And somebody makes a trade in the league that helps them in this year's race. And I, all of a sudden I complain to the commissioner saying they're making a trade that affects the overall race in the four year cycle, not just this year. And I object to that on ethical grounds or moral grounds or, or whatever it is. So it seems like in a way you'd be creating an incentive to keep playing and maximizing your points. But in a, in a perverse way, you'd be also creating an incentive for people to complain about trading that affects the overall race, because now there's two overall races and the, the overall race in the single year might be perfectly legit, but you're also now also possibly affecting this longer cycle race that's going on for, over this rolling four year period. Yeah, it it, it, it it say that say it's a redraft league because I only think this works in a redraft league because if you get a you're rebuilding you know you're you're done I only think it works so it's a redraft league but you're keeping something you're keeping points right so even though the different players are different you're you're keeping your previous points so you do have that dynamic of trading you know to win now versus to improve the future so by making that sort of a trade by trading you know, a, 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 you know, a Jesus Lizardo for Jacob deGrom, you are helping win the four year and maybe even helping get, improve your point total this year, but you're reducing your chances to compete 
the next three years. I think what it, it as the cases in keeper leagues, I think it takes a set of of, of of participants to understand that dynamic that that could happen, and not only understand it but embrace it and realize that that's that's part of the deal. This is part of the allure of the of the you know the the elegance of a league of this manner is yeah it's a it's, it's each year's a redraft. But we're also going to have that element of win now versus improve my chances for later. I'm liking this film more and more. <laughs> yeah, and then in year four, somebody complains that I, I spent my whole time planning to win this four-year cycle, and then Joe went and traded Mike Trout to to Sam, yeah. you know, and, and it messed my, messed up my plan. I don't think this is fair. You know, years ago when I first started writing about fantasy baseball, I remember getting into a debate about dump trading, which is a debate we've had enough times not to want to repeat yeah. it. Everybody knows those things. And John Benson. Uh, was part of the debate. And at one point he said something that has really stuck with me over the years. He says, you can't run two races on one track. And I thought that's exactly it. And that's one of the reasons that I decided to only play in, in reentry leagues rather than in keeper leagues, because to play keeper leagues aggressively and competitively is really going to require you to make some trades that are going to offend the people who are in the running in a particular year, because, you know, you're going to trade Mike Trout for three prospects or whatever the case might be. That's going to have profound effects in, in this year. And you can legitimately argue, yeah, but he's a last year of his contract. I got Wander Franco in a package. I'm setting myself up for the next three years. It's a perfectly valid trade on that race it's a perfectly invalid trade on this race, but we're running both the races at the same time on the same track. And it seems like a lot of the solutions for this larger problem are going to run into that kind of, that same kind of conundrum. Right. I think for me though, my, my personal solution is my, I, I do play in a couple of keeper leagues with those sorts of trades. They're amongst, these aren't, you know, they're amongst friends. These are not run on the internet. Uh, these I, I wouldn't have joined the league if I didn't. One of them is run by Chris Olson uh, from Baseball HQ, the great KO. Um, I wouldn't run the I wouldn't join a league of this nature if I didn't trust that these that that it wasn't that it is business. I would trust that, that people understand it's business. I wouldn't join an internet league of this nature just because you're going to have teams that win and run and, and 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 things like that. So in order to increase the enjoyment, you have to trust that everybody in the league understands the dynamics. And was okay with it. I'm sure there's turnover, but um, you know th th that it's not going to be. You're not going to lose friendships over a trade. You know, if, if I make a trade and 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 Chris loses because of it, you know, he's still gonna. No, nah, he'd be mad. No, he would. He would understand. And you know, in first pitch, we we we'd still you know, you know, embrace and or fist bump whatever it is that that that, that we do at this this coming first pitch. Now the, the interesting when you mentioned John Benson's. A little saying there, what ran through my mind is, is that's kind of akin. I think another interpretation of that is you can't run two races at the same time. In a keeper league, I don't think you can. When I say keeper, this is to me a keeper league is one where there is a, a lot of turnover of players. Where the, the player pool gets replenished by expiring contracts or by very high price players that are cost prohibitive, as opposed to a dynasty league where you pretty much keep everybody ad not ad infinitum, you know, forever. Uh, there could be a little turnover, but in the keeper league, what I always hear is, you know, I don't want to make that trade because I don't want to give up my top prospect. Well, if you're going to win the league, it, it should hurt. 
you should have to give up keepers, your top prospect, whatever it might be. So to me, you know, running two races at the same time could also be interpreted as trying to win this year without giving up your keepers. No, no, no. If you want to win a keeper league, you, you know, the league did not do the right thing if it didn't, you know, hurt the team that's going to win, if it didn't take away some of its keepers. I mean, if, if, the, if the same team wins a keeper league two, three years in a row, it's because the other 12 or 15 teams or whatever it might be didn't do their job. And, and, and strip the champion of their keepers. I agree entirely. And, and I think that's a big part of the attraction of, of dump trading in those leagues is that it serves to level out the playing field and prevent certain teams from becoming dynasty teams. In effect, by having their cake and eating it too, I've got Mike Trout and I'm keeping Wander Franco for the future, you know, yeah. and, and I'm keeping my, my top prospects. It didn't cost me anything. Now it's possible through clever management that you could ha- you could legitimately have your cake and eat it too because you built a really solid team that has staying power over the contract period and and you could win two or three titles without giving up your prospects because you built a really solid team it's a really interesting discussion another topic when we talk about trade ethics todd is whether a fantasy manager who wants to deal a player or a bunch of players in keeper leagues or in redraft formats, do you have to make a general announcement to the league that you're doing it? And I'm not saying I'm planning on trading, you know, Jacob deGrom to Todd, but you have to say, I'm willing to trade Jacob deGrom, make me an offer type of thing. Some people think it's, that's the way you really should do it for both ethical reasons and for marketing reasons. And some people say you should do what you want. If you want to just go to Todd directly, because you know, Todd likes Jacob deGrom, make your deal and somebody else complains later on, I would have given you more. Maybe you would have, but I got what I wanted from Todd. I'm happy. Move on. You've crowdsourced this through a tout table. You've crowdsourced this through your Twitter account. Where do people come down on this and where do you come down on the, you gotta, you gotta tell the league. Yeah. I'm a little surprised about this in that I assumed that the majority would say, yes, make the cattle call, at least announce that he's available. But the Twitter responses were not that. The Twitter says, just work it on your own. And I asked, you know, please embellish why in a couple of cases. One person said that they found that it doesn't help. They found that it, that it, that it, in manner, that, that it doesn't help them, so they don't do it. Another person was even a little bit more detailed and says they felt that because everybody knows that you're looking to move Jacob deGrom, you can't get as much for him. I, you know, this is, it's an opinion. I don't think there's an answer. I, I disagree with that content contention. Um, all it takes is two to push the price. Oh, you know, to keep pushing the price up. But I, I to me, a lot of these deals, it's kind of obvious I'm going to trade Jacob deGrom. So by announcing it, you know, I, I get people thinking about it. Uh, you know, so I, I don't think, I don't think it, lessens the offers if there's only if there's only one offer then okay but i think there's how often is that the case how often is the case where you only get one team interested so much as so long as two teams are interested you're going to get what you want well todd this has been interesting so far trading ethics is something that we could probably talk about longer and I bet our listeners are afraid we might. So let's take a break. (laughs) (laughs) Let's take a break here and we'll come back in a few minutes. We'll talk about how to analyze the standings. Sure. 
Todd Zola writes for Masters Ball, Rotowire, and ESPN, and appears at SiriusXM Fantasy Sports Radio. He'll be back a little later in the show. Coming up now, we have our Market Watch Player News Reports. Nick with the National League News, Ray with the American League. Right now, though, it's time in the show when I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In playing time tomorrow, analyst Matt Dodge looks at the five teams in the American League Central, including an unsettled Minnesota bullpen and an unsettled Cleveland rotation. And Matt will be on our trade deadline roundtable on Saturday as well. In Market Pulse, Brad Coleman surveys the leagues for players who could be available and worth watching, including guys like Harrison Bader, Akil Badu, Joey Votto, and a whole bunch more. In Facts and Flukes Performance Validation, analyst Mike Werner looks at five American leaguers, including Bo Bichette, Whit Merrifield, and Christian Vazquez. And those are just three articles among dozens, a small sampling of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. Player performance validation in Facts and Flukes, news updates in Playing Time Today, roster forecasting in Playing Time Tomorrow, we have buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers, fantasy market analysis in Brad Coleman's Market Pulse, injury analysis in Matt Cedarholm's column, The Big Hurt, and groundbreaking fantasy baseball research. As well, Baseball HQ has tools like the player projections updated every day, depth charts, daily dashboards, pitcher matchup planners, bullpen indicators, batter consistency reports, complete pitcher PQS logs, those potential surgers and faders, and other leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. Add it all up, you get expert content plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our Market Watch Player News Reports. Ray Murphy is on deck with the American League Report. And leading off, it's the National League News and our old friend, Baseball HQ Pitcher Matchups Analyst, Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Patrick. Of course, there's been a million trades, and uh, we're not going to talk about those today because we have the big uh, trade deadline roundtable edition going to be coming out tomorrow, a special edition on the weekend, so you can look forward to that. In the meantime, we do have news from the National League. Nick, we'll start in Chicago, where infielder Nico Horner was placed on the 10-day IL earlier this week. He's got a strained oblique. Uh, Tom Kephart covering the story for playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. What's the ramifications of Nico Horner going on the IL? Horner's been slowed by injuries uh, in 2021, spending much of the season on the IL. Uh, David Boat, recently activated from the IL, is likely to see the bulk of second place playing time in Horner's absence, with infielder Sergio Alcantara being promoted from AAA to fill Horner's vacated roster spot. Boat has struggled at the plate, much as he did during the short 2020 season. After a surprisingly productive 2019, Boat had become a fly ball hitter with ordinary power, translating to a large number of fly ball outs. With his XBA is only uh, slightly above his uh, sub-2220 batting average, both heavy uh, hard contact index and depressed hit rate suggest that there could be some upside there, though Boat would benefit from converting some of the fly balls into line drives. Easier said than done, though, right, Nick? I mean, all you have to do is convert those fly balls into line drives, kid, and you'll be a star. Absolutely. I, I just, I'll just do it just right away. Uh, he's, uh, it, it could be a real struggle for Boat. He's, uh, he's uh, just uh, getting the ball in the air far too much uh, without enough power behind it to get it uh, out of the park. 
kind of like uh, one of those shows where the the guy says to the young aspiring singer, "All you have to do is sound like Elvis, kid, and you'll be you'll be the greatest." There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Easier said than done. Uh, in San Francisco, they got some good injury news. Uh, infielder Brandon Crawford, who'd been on the IL with an oblique injury of his own, was activated from the list on Thursday of this week. The team designated outfielder Mike Talkman for assignment to make room for Crawford on the roster. This looks like an important move uh, for San Francisco as they chase that division crown. Yeah, very definitely. Crawford, uh, a 909 OPS through 273 at-bats, returned to his everyday shortstop spot on Thursday, displacing interim shortstop Thio Restrada, a 905 OPS through 861 at-bats. So no playing time change uh, at shortstop, but uh, Estrada was also in the lineup in left field Thursday versus uh, David Price, suggesting that he could find at-bats there, uh, batting, battling the likes of Alex Dickerson, uh, Darren Ruff, and red-hot Lamont Wade. Wade has 12 home runs, 901 OPS to 153 at-bats. Uh, currently, Wade is uh, day-to-day with a leg injury. A surprisingly talented statistical lineup has been awfully fluid and crowded all season long, but likely remain so. Uh, as regular first baseman Brandon Belt, with knee inflammation, had just begun a th- AAA rehab stint and could be back this weekend or shortly thereafter. So, uh, to be continued. Keep checking uh, on what San Francisco playing time percentages as People return, and uh, as undoubtedly other folks will head to the IL. And of course, the San Francisco team pages at baseballhq.com will be a valuable resource on any kind of roster planning that you're trying to do. And keep an eye on the uh, on the uh, playing time tomorrow. Jock Thompson covers the National League West, and will keep everybody up to date. Jock was the uh, behind that story in playing time today as well, of course. Uh, Mike Talkman, do you remember Nick when he came over from uh, New York earlier this year? There was a lot of anticipation that Mike Talkman could finally get something done. And uh, gosh, we thought that might be the case, but all those other guys in the outfield with those 900 OPSs got to crowd a guy out. Yep, those other guys have all stepped up, but at this point we're reducing Talkman's playing time by 20% uh, with uh, everyone else uh, uh, coming back to, to, to the, to the uh, active roster. Speaking of coming back to the active roster, Aaron Sanchez started the season in San Francisco looking like he had really recovered his form from when he was fairly dominant in Toronto a few years ago. Then he got into some injury trouble. He had a biceps problem, and then he had a finger injury, which is really troubling for a pitcher. But now he's back. They activated him as well on Thursday of this week and optioned right-hander John Brebbia to AAA Sacramento. Jock Thompson on this story as well. What can we expect from Aaron Sanchez now that he's back? Well, Sanchez had been an early part of the rotation, making six starts with a 3.18 ERA, 56% ground ball rate, over 28 innings pitched, and then was shelled by injuries. And he'll now work in long relief along with the recently activated Sammy Long for the time being. Uh, Brebbia had struggled badly in July, giving up 10 runs and 11 innings out of 10, and will now head to the minors and uh, wait another opportunity. Is there a pathway, do you think, for playing time for Aaron Sanchez to get out of that long relief role and back into the rotation, which would be a, a pathway to a, a lot more fantasy value for sure? Well, cer- certainly there is. I mean, in- injuries happen all the time. So uh, certainly Sanchez would ser- have an opportunity given uh, what uh, kind of injuries may occur from here on out in the rotation. It's worth noting when we're talking about Aaron Sanchez, of course, that he's never been a high strikeout pitcher. He's a ground ball pitcher, and this year was no exception. He's always been between seven and eight strikeouts per nine innings, and that's been the case again this year. So uh, all of the excitement about 
Aaron Sanchez, I think, should be tempered a little bit because he's still the Aaron Sanchez that we've come to expect. Fairly low strikeouts, uh, not that great of a walk rate. So the strikeout to walk rate is sort of sneaks above two once in a while in his career. But uh, what we're looking for these days is more like three. So temper your expectations, I think. Uh, in Miami, some bad injury news. They put starting pitcher Trevor Rogers having a terrific year, but he's going to the injured list as well. Phil Hertz covers the story. What's the news in Miami? Rogers going to the, to the uh, injured list with back spasms. Uh, not a good thing at all. We're not known at this point how much time he may miss, but likely the Marlins will take their time with him. Uh, so far, he's had an excellent 2.37 ERA, but XERA is not quite as good, 3.56. Uh, they recalled uh, Braxton Garrett from uh, AAA Jacksonville. Uh, Garrett has had six uh, major league appearances, five starts the last two seasons, not been very successful. ERA over six appearances is 5.40, XERA 5.12. So uh, fantasy managers will not want to do much more than put Garrett on their watch list uh, until he's able to show better control. His walk rate uh, in 2021 is 11%. How about uh, uh, Tuki Toussaint in Atlanta? He started off, boy, oh boy, he's, he's just looked terrific. And we're trying to figure out, of course, whenever we see something like this, Nick, is it real or is it somehow illusory? And uh, Tanner Smith writes the Arsenal report. He looks at pitchers' uh, pitch mixes. And uh, maybe Tuki Toussaint has some substance behind the flash. At this point, yeah, Tuki Toussaint has long been an exciting but very frustrating prospect for Braves fans and fantasy managers. Always had a knee-buckling 11-5 curveball with a huge amount of vertical depth and a nasty splitter that drops off the table along with an athletic body and delivery. Uh, his downfalls at the major league level have historically been horrendous control and a very hittable four-seam fastball. So he's come back to the majors of 2021 with a completely different approach and highly encouraging results over a very tiny sample of two starts. But 13.2 innings pitched, two earned runs allowed. Uh, once he's done, he's essentially stopped throwing that four-seam fastball, instead leaning on a sinker that is not entirely a new pitch, and uh, uh, had, but had previously uh, been kind of an afterthought. Uh, previously, Toussaint left a lot of fastballs up in the in, uh, arm side in 2020, throwing very little control or command of the pitch, given that his four-seam fastball was his primary pitch in 2020 at 36%. That's not a formula for success. A pitcher need a fastball they could consistently throw for strikes. And the four-seamer was uh, also not exceptional in terms of velocity or spin. 63rd percentile in fastball velocity, 49th percentile in terms of spin, which had a which really a very bad place to be. In other words, working primarily with a bad pitch that he couldn't locate. So here's where the sinker has come in to make Toussaint look like an exciting young pitcher again. Toussaint now is a primary fastball that is not only a better pitch in terms of movement, but also one that he so far has shown in throwing for strikes. And through two starts, his zone percentage is a career-high 52.7%, which is over 8% higher than his career mark heading into 2020. The sinker darts back from left-handed batters. That complements his curveball and splitter extremely well. So he's got now a sinker that breaks one way, curveball that breaks another. Toussaint can really get called strikes with his sinker, and Lots of times batters wouldn't, wouldn't, would not chase that sinker, except it breaks, might be the curveball, which might break the other way. So you've got to watch the sinker because better swing at it because it might be a good pitch. So it's too easy to say if his control is massively improved, but uh, stuff-wise, Toussaint is better off with a sinker than he was with a four-seam fastball. This is the picker to pitch up, pitcher to pick up in your leagues if he's available and see if he can 
continue to throw strikes because if he can, he looks poised to pile up some strikeouts for the rest of the season. And decent numbers so far, as you said, 132 ERA and a whip way under one in his two starts. Tuki Toussaint is being snapped up in leagues all over the place, so if he's still available in your league, you probably want to make your move because he's not going to be there for much longer. Uh, moving along, Nick, uh, we like talking about Ryan Bloomfield's speculator column, and this week he's looking at some pitchers who might slow down in September because of workload issues, and there's some names on here that I think we need to pay attention to, starting in Chicago with Adbert Alzolay. Alzolay hasn't quite delivered on the forecasters up 3.50 ERA, but we'll pen that more to brutal luck factor. 68% strand rate, 24% home run per fly than anything else. The problem is he might not have time for those to regress as he's already thrown more in this season, 88 innings this season, than in any of the past three. Maximum three seasons, maximum 81, average 47 innings pitch. And Chicago at this point has no motivation for push him since they're in full sell mode. So expecting to put the brakes on the 26-year-old usage down the stretch so as not to overuse him and really kind of hold him back for next season. Yeah, we're getting to that part of the season, I think, when a lot of teams that are out of the running are going to start uh, tapping the brakes, as you said, on the young pitchers on their staffs. Uh, there's another guy who's in a different situation now in Milwaukee. Freddie Peralta hasn't thrown 100 pitches in a start since June the 4th as Ryan reports the Milwaukee right-hander has been starting this year after a career mostly in long relief, and the innings are adding up. Yes, and Milwaukee may be uh, the, the last previous previous outing may be a uh, microcosm of how they're going to handle his workload spike. 51 pitches, 40th pitch. Uh, he's a lock to uh, beat the forecasters up projection of 3.25 ERA, but peak production is likely in the rearview mirror as he hasn't reached 100 innings since 2018. Uh, looked at the Brewers to uh, ease off the gas a little bit and say Peralta for the postseason. Yeah, that's a kind of a double-edged sword, isn't it? They really don't need all hands on deck because they have a fairly comfortable lead in their division and not a lot of threats coming up behind them. I guess Cincinnati could put together a spurt and maybe put some pressure on them. But it's a shame for people who have Freddie Peralta on their rosters because uh, you said that he, the forecaster had a 3.25 ERA upside for him. And boy, he's going to beat that almost by a full run if he keeps going the way he's going at 229, an 089 whip. And he's got a lot of strikeouts, 140 strikeouts in a hundred and two innings, I think. This is a really interesting situation for roster management in fantasy, isn't it, Nick? Because you really would like to keep him going, but you're so dependent on what Milwaukee decides to do. You almost hope that they'd get into a nice little six-game losing streak and have the Reds get a five-game win streak going and maybe narrow the, narrow the race a little bit so that they have to keep throwing Peralta back out there because playoff success doesn't mean anything in our game. Uh, that's exactly right. Playoff success doesn't mean a thing for us, but uh, it could mean everything for Milwaukee. And so uh, we'll have to keep an eye on, on how they need to use Peralta, but they definitely want him uh, sharp for the playoffs, assuming they keep going and make it. So uh, just just be careful on Peralta and expect that any pitch may come down, uh, any pitch for start may come down over the next few starts. Another pitcher who's kind of in a similar situation is Julio Urias in Los Angeles. Again, the team is in a really tight race in the National League West. There's three teams all jockeying for position. 
So it doesn't look like Los Angeles can slow down on their innings for any of their pitchers, especially considering the Bauer situation and the injuries that they've had in that rotation. What does Ryan say we can expect from Julio Arias? Urias will set a new career-high innings pitch total in his next start. And so the Dodgers may try to groom uh, one of the, the game's top young arms for the postseason. Uh, beyond just the workload, Urias posted his worst skills of any month in July. 8.3 stringing, swinging strike rate, 4.36 XERA, and four starts. So uh, while we're uh, just speculating, it's uh, quite possible to slow down his gun given his history of shoulder issues. Uh, so we've got a skill, slight skill slide, uh, likely workload reduction. May already have seen the best of Urias for this season for fantasy managers. Yeah, I'm curious how the Dodgers are going to manage this because they're three games out right now in the West behind that surprisingly strong San Francisco Giants team. The Padres are only two and a half back of the Dodgers, which means they're kind of sandwiched in the middle there and they really can't afford to mess around with second string sort of starters and, and bullpen games and what have you because they need to win games. Yeah, they do indeed. The Dodgers need to win now. Uh, and they will uh, undoubtedly make some moves at the trade deadline to make that happen. And, of course, they already have acquiring Max Scherzer, assuming that trade goes through. So that will certainly be a, a boost for their fortunes. Uh, but staying in Los Angeles and talking about pitchers, while they get their rotation sorted out, their bullpen starts to look a little frayed and cracked at the edges, mostly because Kenley Jansen has not pitched well of late. Uh, playing time tomorrow, uh, Dan Marcus covers the National League West this week, and uh, he says Kenley Jansen is something that we need to be a little bit concerned about. Yeah, Kenley Jansen is one of the best closers for the past 10 years, and uh, uh, but uh, had a few turbulent seasons by his standards entering 2021. That led to speculation regarding his ability to hold on to the closer's role. And those concerns only have grown louder. He's walked 14 batters in his first 14.1 innings pitched this season, uh, but rebounded in a big way since then. Entered the All-Star break with a 1.24 ERA, 1.02 whip, 28.7% strikeout rate. But in four appearances since the All-Star break, Jansen has allowed eight earned runs across just three innings and four appearances, three of which resulted in blown saves. Uh, manager Dave Roberts gave Jansen a vote of confidence after his latest blown save, and he was able to convert a save opportunity Sunday, Saturday against the Giants. But even so, his seat is uh, warming up at a minimum. If the team opts to look elsewhere, Blake Trinan is the clear standout option currently on the roster. He has both strong results, 2.45 ERA, 1.02 whip, and very good skills, 28% strikeout percentage, 22% strikeout minus walk percentage, 13.6 swinging strike rate, 0.7 home runs per nine. Add in his usage to this point, a 1.47 leverage index, 21 holds, and his previous success as a closer. And clearly he is the top alternative to Jansen should uh, Jansen need a bit of a rest before before the playoffs. Victor Gonzalez has shared the primary setup duties with Trinan, also been proven trustworthy in high leverage roles, 1.23 leverage index, 16 holds. But it's not particularly clear that Gonzalez offers an upgrade over Jansen at this time as he's recently returned from foot injury and has had shaky results in his limited appearances since then. Three earned runs, four hits, one walk across 1.1 innings pitch. Peripheral offerings exist within the team, including Joe Kelly. Uh, Kelly's been largely excellent since returning from an injury that held him out at the beginning of the season, uh, though his usage lags in comparison to those two previous options. Uh, and relative lack of closer experience for Kelly and a chance to do anything more than pick up spare saves Seems minimal at this point. 
Uh, Jimmy Nelson can be activated from the injured list by the time uh, by by the time we're speaking. Though so his usage falls more in line with Kelly's rather than Triner or Gonzalez. The team also acquired Danny Duffy from Kansas City during the trade deadline as well. And we have him down as a starter, but kind of seventh on the list right now behind a, a whole bunch of other guys. Do you think there's any chance that they take a look at him as a possible arm out of the bullpen? There, there certainly is a possibility for that. Uh we're going to see some shuffling around in the uh, in the LA rotation, obviously with the trade acquisition, and it will be interesting to see how all of those play out. Uh, of course, the possibility that David Price would go back to the bullpen uh, and that uh, that's another another option, certainly at this point. Yeah, Price or Duffy. There's they they. I think what they're trying to do it, it looks like is just pile up as many pitchers as they can, like almost like de- cards in a deck, and then shuffle them around and deal them and see what they've got because uh, uh, Los Angeles certainly looks like a very powerful team. Uh, they've acquired a, a number of guys in the trade deadline, and they're certainly loaded for bear. The question is, can they compete continuously in the National League West given the strength of the other contenders there? They can't rest on their laurels. No, they can't. Indeed, they need to. Uh, they need to keep winning and and stay in in the fight with San Francisco and San Diego. So it, uh, they're going to be uh, uh, be trying to see how what what is the best rotation they can put out there and keep healthy for the rest of the season. And boy, so much of the uh, question rests on what goes on with Trevor Bauer. But I heard a story the other day, Nick. I don't know if you saw this, but the other guys in the clubhouse don't want him back. And maybe that's a, a complication as well. That could indeed be a complication if uh, if that's a, if that is indeed the case. And finally, uh, we talked about Dan Marcus covering the National League West for playing time tomorrow. We also had a look at the National League Central, and one of the stories uh, we talked about the Reds earlier trying to run down the uh, Brewers in that National League Central division. And what Dan Marcus reports about the Reds is that Nick Senzel is maybe versatile enough that he's going to get opportunities. Yeah, you know, Senzel has struggled to deliver on his prospect pedigree since early in his career, mostly due to a wide array of injuries, and the team has struggled to find a home for him defensively. Began his minor league career with the, the team at third base, played position at each level in the minors, then now blocked by Eugenio Suarez and shuffled second base in the outfield in the lead up to his promotion to the majors, and that has continued during his time in Cincinnati. Now preparing for a rehab assignment, uh, manager David Bell announced last week that Sell would see time in both center field and shortstop. The obvious reason is that he struggles the struggles the Reds have had to fill the shortstop position all season long. Uh, Suarez has struggled defensively, since Suarez has shifted back to his natural third base position in the absence of Mike Moustakas. Uh, Kyle Farmer has been uninspiring at the bat, 81% contact rate, uh, 111 hard contact index, 254 expected batting average. Uh, so at least in terms of potential, Senzel offers a clear upgrade. He can stick defensively. Uh, though Jose Bar- Barrow has improved at AAA, Louisville, the team appears willing to let him gain experience after rushing him to the majors in 2020. Uh, Nick Castellanos' injury uh, also opens playing time in the outfield. Uh, Jesse Winker and Tyler Naquin are locked into nearly everyday roles, but since Castellanos has gone down, uh, Risa Days Aquino and uh, Sojo Akiyama have alternated playing time. So there's an additional path to playing time in the outfield, probably for Sinzel there. 
I imagine in most leagues, Senzel would be on a roster somewhere or a reserve list. But if not, I think this analysis shows that this is an opportunity to maybe grab up Nick Senzel before he actually gets into that position and starts rolling. And it would be quite handy if he picked up some shortstop eligibility. Oh, it would indeed. I mean, obviously, th- that would be a, a uh, an excellent bat to have at the shortstop position uh, if, in fact, he becomes eligible there. All right, Nick. Busy week. Thanks very much for the analysis, and we'll talk to you again in seven days' time. All right. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and covers the National League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Over we go to the American League and BaseballHQ.com co-general manager and columnist Ray Murphy. Ray, welcome back to the show. Glad to be here, PD. Let's start in Minnesota. The Twins put left-handed reliever Taylor Rogers on the 10-day IL earlier this week with a left middle finger sprain and recalled a right-hander named Bo Burrows from AAA. Rick Green covers the Twins for playing time today. Rogers had nine saves this season. He was kind of in a 1A, 1B closer situation with Hansa Robles. With Taylor Rogers on the 10-day injured list, how did the chips fall in the Minnesota bullpen? We're not totally clear yet how long Rogers is going to be out, so we're being pretty conservative in the playing time deduction for the saves. Robles, as you say, will get the lion's share of save opportunities, but I think we only give him a 10% bump on saves allocation so far until we get some further detail on the injury. Uh, Rogers you know, also has been mentioned in trade talk leading up to the trade deadline in a couple of days, so uh, that might lead to further surgery on the playing time. Uh, you know, the call-up of Burroughs is probably uh, long relief or uh, blowout fodder until uh, he demonstrates any capability beyond that. The Twins look like they might be in sell mode. I mean, they uh, already traded Nelson Cruz, and there's been all kinds of rumors about Barrios, about Taylor Rogers, about Robles, a whole bunch of different guys that uh, could be on their way out. With Robles now the last man standing as far as the Rogers-Robles team, how likely do you think he is to be packing his bags? And if he is traded out, who's next in line to speculate on for saves in, in Minnesota? Not that there'll be that many. The, the obvious candidate that comes to mind would be Alex Colome, but he's been dreadful. I mean, in the game that Rodgers got hurt the other night, uh, Robles had pitched the eighth. And then so when Rodgers got pulled, uh, either after warmups or his first pitch in the ninth, they went to, they went to Colome and Colome immediately blew a three-run lead and, uh, Little win on fire for Michael Pineda owners. Uh, I had I was making some bad Twitter jokes about my middle figure hurting too after uh, Colomay's performance and hurting hurting me as a Pineda owner. But that's neither here nor there. Um, better options to look at might be Tyler Duffy, uh, who has certainly been part of the setup crew there and displays better skills than Colomay. But I think you might display better skills than Colomay, PD. Um, if you want to go deeper, uh, Daniel Colombe, Colum, excuse me, uh, who's a lefty with a Striking uh, 17.0 strikeout to walk ratio, uh, you know, could get some looks later in the season as the Twins try to figure out how their bullpen stacks up for 2022 and beyond. Coulomb has been pretty interesting. The, the 17 command ratios the last month or so, and his home run per fly ball rate has been sky high. So uh, you'd expect that to kind of move down a bit. Strikeouts and walks tend to be more skilly things that have a little bit more staying power than those percentages like strikeout to walk, hit rates, and so forth. I think Coulomb could be somebody who's worth looking at, especially in deeper leagues. I checked in my deep league and long gone, of course. Uh, it's hard to put uh, guys like that past a lot of players in single leagues, but we'll see. 
Uh, Houston activated utility man Aledmus Diaz from the 10-day IL this week and optioned infielder Robel Garcia back to AAA. Uh, Jock Thompson covers Houston for playing time today. Uh, what are we expecting from Aledmus Diaz on a loaded Houston team? Yeah, this team is loaded and getting healthier too. Uh, so, you know, uh, it's a more of a alert for Diaz owners here. You know, Diaz is going to get three or four starts a week for a little while. Uh, playing all over the field on that team. And, you know, in the very, very short term, he's got the gap between where Abraham Toro went to Seattle and Alex Bregman isn't back yet. So I would imagine uh, for the next week, 10 days, or however long it takes Bregman to get back, it's going to be a lot of Diaz at third. But after that, uh, the playing time could get sporadic pretty quickly. You got to hate those Monday activations, though, don't you? When they bring up a guy and start him on Monday and you miss the whole week, unless you have daily moves, of course. Uh, Detroit Tigers activated right-hander Michael Fulmer from the 10-day IL. He had some back issues. They designated a left-hander, Ian Kroll, for assignment. Back to the minors, uh, Tom Kephart covers the Tigers for playing time today. Uh, Fulmer has had a history of difficulty staying healthy, but that was mostly as a starting pitcher. He's looked a lot more durable in the bullpen until this latest thing. What do you think his role is likely to be for the rest of the season and how useful would he be to a fantasy manager you know this this back problem had you know put him on the shelf a couple of times it seems like they rushed him back or treated it as a minor thing until this instance where they shut him down for i think this was this was three three plus weeks around the all-star break so hopefully they they they've actually flattened the issue uh but but yes before before getting shut down he had quickly moved into higher level leverage work in that tiger pen had taking over some save opportunities, even some multi-inning save opportunities, and was really flashing the kind of improved skills you want to see when pitchers move to the bullpen from a starting rotation and can, you know, go full effort and pump up their velocity, shrink down their pitch mix, get more swinging strikes. Fulmer was doing all of those things and showing signs of becoming an impact back back into the bullpen option. In his absence, Gregory Soto, Jose Cisnero have been holding down the High leverage work in that pen. Uh, Fulmer immediately goes into at least equal footing with them and may, over the course of the next two months, grab at least a share of the save ops, if not the primary part of it. The last time I checked his skills, for a guy who was a fairly highly touted prospect coming into the league and uh, we thought was going to be pretty special, has not actually been tremendous. His expected ERA is right around four. He's striking out less than 10 guys per inning. It's swinging strike rate's good. Uh, first pitch strike rate, you know, average at best. He walks a fair number of guys, too, uh, relative to his to his strikeouts. I think Fulmer's pretty interesting because of the ground ball tendency, but I'd be a little bit cautious, although I have to say I like what Detroit's doing. And it used to be the, the joke was, uh, as I said earlier about Minnesota, somebody's going to get the saves, but there won't be many of them. I think uh, Detroit is looking surprisingly competent these days, and therefore a guy like Michael Fulmer, if you think he's going to get save opportunities, might get saves out of those opportunities. Yeah, it's sort of the, you know, you could use an analogy about the, uh, you know, best of a bad lot, but the Tigers are quietly making a run all the way up. You know, they're knocking on the door of second place in that division as Cleveland fades here. And if they, if the Indians sell off, then the the Tigers, as you say, they've been surprisingly competent. They're not that far below 500. The save ops are a little more regularly appearing here than you might think. You know, as for former skills, I think you're right, especially about uh, as far as, um, you know, in the starting role, but 
you know, he started in April. He had one start in May. And since then, it's been about 20 bullpen appearances. And uh, I'm doing some on-the-fly math here. But I count uh, 19 innings in May, June, and July, all of all – of, except one of those appearances as a reliever. And it's, it's 19 innings, five walks, and 22 strikeouts. So he's got the walks under control, and the strikeouts are still there. Uh, you know, and, and he's, you know, we're talking about small samples here, but, you know, there's some reason to think that the bullpen is where he's going to be for the long term here. And you know, the Tigers, as they infuse the Dew and Daz Cameron and Mize and Scooble and Manning, you know, they're turning the page to the next generation of their, uh, of, of this franchise. And, you know, Fulmer might end up becoming a part of that out of the bullpen, I think more likely than uh, Gregory Soto as far as uh, who's, if you're placing a closer bet, a dynasty league or something like that. Might be a better get for keeper leagues because uh, Detroit's oh, yeah. likelier to be better next year as they m- complete that transition from the Miguel Cabrera era to the Akil Badu era. And I'm looking at Detroit. They're eight and a half games out in the wild card race, but there's seven, six or seven teams between them and the second wild card spot. And that's at this stage of the season, I think that's more important than how many games you are behind. It's how many teams you have to leapfrog to get there because they all have to cooperate by losing games on your behalf. And, and meanwhile, uh, they're 12 games out of uh, the lead in the central division and Chicago looks like a lock there to me. So I wonder if there's a sell-off coming for Detroit as they try to maybe add some pieces and uh, doff some of their guys that are not part of their big future. We will know soon enough for sure, but you're right. I, the, the bar for this team, I, you know, a second-half goal for them is, in my mind, is just to creep back to 500, not actually to get into the wild-card race. That's a, that, that's, a, that's a hill too tall to climb. I think you're right about that, and I think it's interesting that I've seen some coverage from the Detroit media saying what they're trying to do is teach these young players how to win, how to play baseball in pressure situations, how to keep slugging away where not that long ago, if you were in Detroit, there was kind of no point in really giving it 110% out there because you knew you were going to lose one way or the other and finish you know, 25 games under 500 or whatever it was year in, year out. I think this is an interesting team to watch, and it's a great story for baseball. Let's move down to Tampa Ray and... They activated uh, outfielder Manuel Margot from the 10-day IL. He was recovering from a hamstring problem. Chris Olson covers the Rays for playing time today. So this raises an interesting question. Where does Margot fit into the playoff contending Rays roster, especially with the Rays having acquired Nelson Cruz while Margot was out? And there goes any DH possibilities for Austin Meadows. And all of a sudden, that outfield looks a little crowded. Yeah, it's funny. It's Margot was only out for two weeks, but he comes back to a much more crowded situation than when he left for the reasons you cite. Uh, we've got not only is Cruz new a new arrival in clogging the DH spot, and of course, you know, stabilizing the lineup and the cleanup spot in the lineup to begin with. To begin with, but you know, for the moment, Kevin Kiermaier is healthy. Randy Arozarena is still holding down right field, so. And with, with Meadows and left field, that sort of pushes Margot into a fourth outfield role or maybe the bad side of the platoon center with Kiermaier. Of course, you know, Kiermaier's next injury could be, you know, tonight for all we know. So this is all uh, this is all a fluid situation. Uh, Margot did get a couple of starts this week against uh, the lefties. I saw him actually batting leadoff against Jordan Montgomery in one of his first games off the, the, the IL. But, yeah, it's going to remain to be seen how much playing time he can find uh, against right-handed pitching, as, as long as Kiermaier and Meadows and Arozarena and Cruz are all demanding lineup spots, which they do against righties. 
Mind you, Kiermaier hasn't exactly been uh, Barry Bonds out there against right-handed pitching. You know, uh, he's six thirty-six OPS is not that different from from uh, what Margot is doing. I guess the advantage Kiermaier has is the glove. Both Kiermaier and Margot are premium defensive center fielders. Kiermaier, of course, is a uh, nightly fixture on the highlight highlight reel, but Margot can go get it pretty well, just as well. But uh, you know that we, I remember, I. I think it was on this show here. We had that conversation about what were the Rays doing a couple of years ago when they went out and got Marco when they had Kiermaier. But I think the principle is that they really value that center field defense and they know that Kiermaier is not durable enough to handle it for 150 games. So Marco is there to provide, you know, minimal defensive downgrade when Kiermaier is unavailable, which happens to be fairly regularly. And it was a pretty easy roster situation to manage when they had the DH slot open. They could rotate those guys around in there and give everybody a fair amount of playing time, but Cruz certainly put an obstacle into that path, and an obstacle they're glad to have, I'm quite sure. Tampa also sent down infielder Taylor Walls to AAA and recalled a right-hander named Sean Poppin. Chris Olson on this story as well, and he says Walls' demotion might just be a case of needing an extra bullpen arm in Poppin, but maybe not. Yeah, and I think this actually ripples back to the outfield, too, uh, because we talked about the Rays' ability to move guys around in the context of Wanda Franco getting called up, and then after Franco, uh, Vidal Brujan, who got called up and then sent back down. Uh, but what's, what really seems to have happened is Franco is entrenched at shortstop now, and Yandy Diaz... Uh, has picked it up a little bit lately and seems to be getting most of the third base opportunities. If you remember when Franco first came up, we thought he would slide more between short and third than he actually has. Uh, but Diaz seems like he is picking up the at-bats along with Joey Wendell at third base. And Brandon Lau has also picked up his production at second. Uh, Lau was moving a little bit out to the outfield when the outfield was not as crowded when Bruhan, Franco, and Walls were all around. So the, as the outfield has gotten more stable, the infield has gotten more stable too. And I think this is the Rays, you know, sort of in stretch drive mode here, put, making a decision to put, the re, put their best team on the field, uh, you know, a more stable lineup than they've had so far. And uh, Walls and Bruhan don't fit into that right now. I'm sure they'll be back on September 1st. But uh, for, the, for the month of August, it looks like they're going with uh, Diaz and Wendell at third and Franco at short, low at first we'll go in second and uh you know jimmy and Choi at first maybe some yandy over there too in los angeles and this is not a good story the Angels said outfielder mike trout is still dealing with that discomfort in his calf that's kept him out for weeks now and he was supposed to meet with a doctor on monday uh, manager joe madden meanwhile says the team is going to have a better timetable for trout after the doctor's visit any updates not confirmed updates but there's there's some tea leaves we can read here. Uh, you know, we, we don't have hard news, but Joe Madden is telling the LA media that this this seems striking to me that Trout might be moved to an outfield corner for the rest of the year to save his legs a little when he comes back. This is after we've all been wondering when Trout would return, given you know that when he was hurt in Bay, we were quoted a six to eight week timeline, and we're about there. And now Brandon Marsh is up. He hasn't looked really good in center field yet. He's only hit two nineteen with. No home runs, uh, striking out 30% of the time, uh, walking a little bit, but not doing a lot with balls in play. So it's not like Trout has been pushed off of center field by 
Well, I mean, nobody comes along and pushes Mike Trout off of center field, so we don't even need to talk about that, right? Uh, but Trout reportedly still isn't even running at full strength, hasn't run at all for a couple of days. So it seems like, given he's going to need a rehab stint after this amount of time, he's at least a week or two away, maybe longer. So Marsh, Justin Upton, Adam Eaton, all look locked into the starting outfield and for the Angels for a little while longer. Taylor Ward got sent down to AAA, but he's available if they need him. Joe Adele is still working and hitting pretty well in AAA. We've talked about him in the past. And, of course, you know it's not like Trout can come back at DH because Joe Otani's got that locked down. Yeah, it's pretty crowded out there is the point, I think. They did create a little bit of roster room, not in the outfield, of course, but uh, Jared Walsh went to the oblique. He's having a really good year and has been a real find for Los Angeles, I think, but he's got an oblique problem. What's the playing time and positional roster slot fallout from uh, Walsh being on the on the IL? They've got a couple of options here. That they called up Matt Tice, who... You might remember had a late 2019 power surge. I think it was in August and September when he hit eight home runs in a you know six week or so cup of coffee. Uh, it then really was not seen much of in the short season last year. Uh, he was only up for 20 at bats and uh, it made made no impact at all. But the Angels might look to him to hold down the uh, gap in the, on the infield created by Walsh's injury. But you know the other. Other alternative they have is Phil Gosselin, who's been filling in already with Rendon out, et cetera. So he's available and may, and may just be the one who sticks in the lineup. So, but it, it, in some combination, it'll be it'll be Tyson Gosselin filling in for as long as Walsh is out. And we should say he went on the injured list on Wednesday. They called it a right intercostal strain. It's just another fancy medical term for oblique. So he won't be back for a little while anyways. And those obliques tend to hang around as injuries too, of course. Uh, Ryan Bloomfield writes the speculator column, Your Old Job. And he had a pretty interesting piece at BaseballHQ.com this week on possible September slowdowns. And there were some names that I think people should be interested in. Let's start in Boston. He talked about Nate Ivaldi. Yeah, so Nate Evaldi, uh, you know, we sort of skimmed this a couple of weeks ago with Chris Sale coming back soon and Tanner Houck being called up and how the Red Sox are trying to manage their workloads. Uh, but the thing about Evaldi is he's been taking the ball regularly, which uh, all season long, which for Nate Evaldi is big news, right? That almost never happens. But he's on a 190-inning pace right now, which really blows any recent workloads of his out of the water. Um, you know, and one of the funny things that, Ryan gets to in this piece is a lot of the guys that he flags as having workload concerns here, Ivaldi being no exception, are on contenders. So it's not like they can just shut a guy down for a couple weeks in September and you know give him a you know an early start to the offseason. The Red Sox need Ivaldi in October, which is going to push his innings total even higher. So what are they going to do in the meantime to try to manage this a little bit? And, you know, I was joking earlier, but, you know, Evaldi does carry an F health grade for a reason. He's never come anywhere near close to this workload. Uh, and you, you sort of feel like if they don't do something to back to tap, tap the brakes on him, he's going to be a ticking time bomb at some point, maybe at a time when they really need him in October as opposed to right now. So, uh, you know, watch this space, but uh, expect some creative management, extra off days, if not the, you know, phantom DL stint or something like that to uh, to, get, to give him a break because I don't think anybody thinks Evaldi can go 200 plus. 
And of course, they don't have a lot of wiggle room because they're not running away with the division either. They can't just say, let's have Nadia Ovaldi not pitch for a week or two so that we can get him ready for October because in the meantime, they might fall out of the race and not be involved in October at all. I, I like their chances of, of winning the division, but it's certainly not etched in stone at this point, especially with the Yankees are very, very aggressive on the trade front. Uh, Joey Gallo's apparently on the way to New York. The last I heard, they were just getting a medical and uh, that deal will be done and we'll be talking about that deal and all the others uh, on Saturday when we have our post-trade roundtable here at Baseball HQ Radio. But the way that Ryan set up this column was basically what he was looking at is guys whose innings pitched have taken a big jump uh, over previous years and uh, at the top of that list was Jordan Montgomery. We also mentioned uh, Nate Eovaldi and a couple of guys in Oakland should be raising the concerns of Athletics fans and their owners, Sean Manaya and James Caprellian are both on their way to career highs in innings, and neither of them has been the most durable guy in the world either. Yeah, that's exactly right. Caprellian is, you know, certainly younger than Ivaldi, who we're just talking about, but you know may rival him in terms of complexity of injury history. Uh, you know, his career high in innings pitched at any level in one year is, I, th- I believe, sixty, and he's at seventy-two right now, and he's been really good. Yeah. You, you, these, you know, like the Red Sox, want to win, and they're going to have to lean on Caprellian to do that because he's one of their best five pitchers. But you have to wonder about the ramifications of that. You know, he's already got 72 innings, which is 12 over his career high, which that's in the majors. It doesn't even count. I don't have in front of me how many he pitched in the minors before he was called up this year. But he's way over any previous high, has two months of season in front of him still, plus a postseason. And the A's need him, but you know it, it's unreasonable to think he can throw he can throw that kind of workload. So there's going to have to be some skip starts or something in there to tap the brakes. Manaya is a little bit of a different story, and he's at least a veteran with a uh, you know longer track record behind him. But again, uh, you know last year nobody threw many innings. He was hurt for most of 2019 and only threw 30 innings. If I remember, those were all at the end of the season in September as he came back from uh, a shoulder shoulder injury. So it's been since 2018 since he's thrown 160 innings in a year, and he's certainly on track to do that now. Uh, can they, will they let him go all the way back up toward and beyond that prior career high? I, you know, I think that's an open question. It is. Caprellian only had four and two-thirds innings in the minors this year before his call-up. I think he was hurt for a little while in there as well. Uh, Not 100% sure about that. But another pair of pitchers hitting that innings high, and we talked about Detroit earlier, and they don't really have nearly the incentive that these playoff contenders have. But uh, Casey Mize and Tariq Skubal are both getting towards those um, career highs in innings, and there's still two months to go. Is there any chance that we see them get pulled out or cut down or, you know, go five innings max in a start or 90 pitches or 85 pitches or something like that, which would really affect their fantasy value if that turns out to be what happens? And it's something that their fantasy managers need to consider as we approach fantasy trade deadlines. I, I think all of those things are on the table. In fact, the in terms of the pitch counts, I'm looking at Mize's game log right now, and I think they're already doing that. Uh, you know, he he had he only, he's only had a couple of games up in the upper 90s, and in July, I'm looking at his pitch counts, and not for lack of effectiveness, he's given up some runs, but his walking strikeout numbers are pretty reasonable. Uh, 56 pitches, 50 pitches, 54 pitches, 79 in his last outing. It looks to me like they're already tapping the brakes there, and this I you know the because of the lack of contention 
uh, in Detroit. I think these are more traditional September slowdowns for the um, for the title of Ryan's column. I think you'll see these guys sort of being managed by pitch count as they already are, but it's easy to imagine that come mid-September, they, uh, <laughs> AJ Hinch goes to Mize and Scooble and says, guys, great job this year, you know, shut it down and we'll, we'll see you in March. Um, and they get a, they get an extra couple of weeks off once they hit whatever the prescribed inning number is. So, uh, you know, they don't have to about, worry about keeping them fresh for October or anything like that. So you would think that, you know, once they, uh, reach a certain point, they're just going to say, you've done all we wanted you to do this year. So if you happen to be a fantasy manager, especially in a keeper league who has either Mize or Scooble, both of whom are going to be interesting as future prospects, I think, in uh, in the minds of many fantasy managers in those leagues, these guys might be the ideal sort of candidate to try to trade now to get somebody who's going to be a little more on the mound for the balance of the season than either of them. Yeah, I think that's right. I'm, you know, I, I might have a default mindset for the sort of dance with Hubrugna sort of approach to the stretch run. But I think cases like this are the clear exception where you've probably realized most of the value and profit you can from the, some of some of these young arms. And uh, you, you need to uh, find a different horse to get you over the finish line, so to speak. And finally, in this column, uh, Ryan pointed out that Carlos Rodon is on a current pace to get to the mid-160s, which would uh, be quite a lot more, to say the least, than the 41 he managed to put together over the last couple of years. Great season, but again, the White Sox, who are running away with their division, unlike some of the other playoff contenders, have an incentive to slow down on him to make him ready for maybe another month of baseball after September is over. Yeah, but boy, is he making it difficult for them? He's just been so good. It looks like he's actually gathering strength as the season goes on. I mean, in July, he's got uh, in four starts, he's got 22 innings, four walks, and 32 strikeouts. Uh, BPV over uh, base performance value over 200. I mean, he's just he's just basically saying, "Give me the ball." And you know, the, obviously, the wild card here is Tony Larusa, and whether uh, he believes in uh, baby being these uh, fragile arms or not, uh, you know, he, he might just think Rodon is, uh, you know, Bob Welch or Dave Stewart or insert your uh, insert your prime era A's uh, workhorse pitcher here. So um, <laughs> we'll have to see how this plays out. But you would certainly think that you know, Rodon has got another profile that's a lot like Ivaldi. Like you say, he's already over 100 innings and he threw 120 in 2018. But other than that, you got to go all the way back to 2016 where he threw 165 for a number that you know looks bigger than what he's on track for right now, uh, and he's going to get to 165 at least if, he, if they don't tap the brakes on him. So, you know, again, there's no sign that anything's wrong with them or, or with him or anywhere in tear. But you have to wonder whether he can carry this. And the last thing the White Sox want is for him to, you know, suddenly you know lose a, wear down, lose a little velocity, you know, when they need him most in a uh, in a division series game or something like that. And of course, we don't know what Chicago knows about his general health. He's 28 years old now, which is sort of his physical prime. And sometimes players who, even if they do have that injury history, once they get past the young man's injuries, where there's usage injuries because they're not fully developed, at age 28, maybe uh, between the White Sox knowing about that, knowing about his medical situation, talking with doctors and physios and stuff like that, they might think, yeah, we know it's a lot of innings, but... Uh, we think he can do it. Yeah, that's entirely right. And there's there's some reason to think that this isn't the same Rodon 
who was so injury prone for so long because, well, he's not pitching like that Rodon either. He's been better than that guy. You know, he picked up, you know, he's three miles an hour, four miles an hour over his previous uh, average velocity. So obviously there were some, there's some mechanical cleanup that happened in there to, you know, pick up those, uh, that extra MPH. And maybe that same mechanical cleanup has, you know, eliminated whatever strain or torque or, um, what, what was generating the sort of repeated elbow and shoulder problems he was having. And as you say, the White Sox are probably more aware of that than we are. So maybe they just ride him. We'll, we'll uh, wait and see. But, uh, you know, I, I, I think it's fair to say over August and September that the, uh, you know, the, the, the risk goes up incrementally. I think that's right. But again, as I mentioned earlier, Chicago's going to be pretty comfortably in the lead in that division, it looks like, for the balance of the year. So they don't really have any reason to push the Carlos Rodons of the world, unlike some of those other teams, as we said. Uh, Ryan did point out 400 IL days over the last five years for Rodon. He has not not been on the IL from 2016 through 2020. Every year, something wrong. Yeah, it's like I said. It's you know, I'm I'm scanning the, that injury log too, and not only is it 400 IL days, but they are are all related to the left arm. There's the wrist, the bicep, the shoulder, the elbow, the shoulder again. I mean, you know, like like we said, maybe between rehabbing the last one and some mechanical reboots, you know, he, he's sort of corralled those problems. But uh, you know, we, we also say the chronically injured don't just get suddenly healthy either. The wrist bone connected to the elbow bone connected to the shoulder bone connected to a lot of trouble if they overuse him, I guess, is the worry that fantasy managers have to consider. And finally, uh, Tanner Smith writes the Arsenal Report at BaseballHQ.com. Tanner did a terrific job on Baseball HQ Radio a couple of weeks ago. It was uh, a lot of fun to talk to, first of all, and then he was really knowledgeable and interesting. And uh, I don't know if you heard the interview, but uh, he used to live right by Ron Chandler in Roanoke. That's how he got into, into fantasy baseball and into baseball HQ and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, he was a friend of the family or something. And, uh, you know, he was our intern for a uh, you know, couple of summers ago while he was in college. And I had him doing, uh, you know, a bunch of stuff that I can only describe as scut work, cleaning up the back end of the website for us and stuff like that. And, you know, he was just so responsive and so easy to deal with that, uh, you know, and he, he had so much interest in getting into the space that, you know, we've just sort of kept the relationship going and he keeps doing, uh, keeps doing more and more cool work for us and we, we we couldn't be happier to have him around he's a he's been a great addition in this uh this arsenal report is just the latest thing he's really blowing it open with uh i know you and i talked about patrick sandoval a couple of weeks ago and um i i often see the changes in performance and don't always get the opportunity to go scurrying off into the abyss of the pitch mix and arm angles and all these things and find out what's driving the success of Tanner does such a great job in this arsenal report of pinpointing what's changed. And in Sandoval's case, it's a new sinker that really is uh, making his entire arsenal play better because uh, he's, he's, it's got the right break and he's u- using a little bit more and it's uh, it, it really plays well off of his four seamer in particular is what uh, is what Tanner observed and has really been what has, uh, you know, it, it sort of gives a, uh, you know, tangible proof of why we're seeing improved skills for Sandoval, which is just kind of like another level of confirmation in, uh, you know, in, in the performance we're seeing that I always appreciate. It's a really critical point to make too, Ray. I think we always say that skills matter and what we're learning is we tended 
10, 15 years ago when I started out at Baseball HQ, and we tended to think that those skills were kind of locked in. And what we're learning more and more is that teams are getting better at adjusting the skills, adjusting the, the approach, and pitch mix is just one of those things. They're getting smarter about it and telling guys basically throw your best pitch more often and your worst pitch less often, and it seems to be working. And Tanner's identifying those guys like Patrick Sandoval, where even five, ten years ago, we might have looked at a performance like Sandoval's putting up this year and think, ah, it looks pretty fluky. You know, it doesn't look like the old Patrick Sandoval. But the, the thing is, what Tanner's pointing out is, it isn't the old Patrick Sandoval. Yeah, that's, that's exactly the critical point. And it allows us to do... Uh, to detect, like you said, that these guys are basically constantly reinventing themselves. And you can see, you know, even down to the individual game start level, I wouldn't necessarily want to draw conclusions about one outing, but if you see a pitcher go out and have a, you know, an anomalous outing, good or bad, you can go kind of go scurrying to the pitch mix and see what, if anything's different. Maybe it's just that, you know, he didn't have his curveball that night or he got tagged or he threw a couple hangers or whatever. But if you see, you know, someone like Sandoval, who you know, wasn't really on your radar, hang up a good start or two. When you go look at the pitch mix and see like, oh, okay, and as recently as in his last you know 100 pitches, he's throwing double the sinkers he was throwing before. You, you, you need more evidence to see if it's a good sinker or whether as that updated scouting report gets around, batters adjust or whatever. But the minute you see the pitch mix change, you can at least say, okay, time for me to, you know, to some extent, forget about what I knew about Patrick Sandoval and we're going to you know, sort of do a fresh evaluation of this quote-unquote new version. And that's great value for fantasy managers to understand those kind of things, especially if you're playing in leagues with guys who don't have access to that kind of analysis and information who might be prone to the argument that, boy, you really should think about trading Patrick Sandoval to me before he you know, <laughs> falls, off the, falls off the wagon and, and goes back to being Patrick Sandoval of old. And it's an argument that you can make sometimes if people aren't uh, as fully aware. Now, People who are listening to this podcast, Ray, might be wondering why we're not talking about Starling Marte going to Oakland and the other American League affecting trades. And the reason is, as I mentioned earlier, we'll be getting back together on Saturday. We'll have a, a roundtable edition with you and Ryan. Jock Thompson will be there, Matt Dodge, and Alex Becky. And I'll be uh, hosting and listening to you guys be smart. And that'll be sometime Saturday afternoon, so I'm looking forward to that. That'll be awesome. I am going to have a lot of prep to do for that, it looks like, given the pace of the trades coming and how many hours we still have left of the deadline. So I'm sure that's going to be chock full by the time we actually get there. It definitely will. Thanks, Ray. We'll talk to you then. Excellent, PD. Catch up soon. Ray Murphy is a co-general manager and columnist at BaseballHQ.com and covers the American League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Next up, it's part two of our feature expert interview with Todd Zola from Masters Ball, Rotowire, ESPN, and Sirius XM. He's coming to the plate for his second at-bat next on Baseball HQ Radio. Right now, though, I do want to remind you again about our special trade deadline roundtable edition coming up tomorrow, Saturday the 31st. I'll be joined by Ray Murphy and Alex Becky from Baseball HQ Radio, Jock Thompson and Ryan Bloomfield, formerly from Baseball HQ Radio and still working at the Baseball HQ site, and Matt Dodge. He'll be coming up in a week or two on Baseball HQ Radio and is an analyst at the site. We're going to discuss all the trades that took place this week. Uh, Frazier, Marte, Escobar, Gallo, Hernandez, Scherzer, Turner, Rizzo, Schwarber, Barrios, all of them. And it's all going to have the focus on fantasy ramifications for the balance of the fantasy season. Baseball HQ Radio. 
And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview with Todd Zola from Masters Ball, Rotowire, ESPN, and Sirius XM. Todd, welcome back to part two. Great to be back with you, PD. You had an article at Rotowire not long after the All-Star break about how to look at and analyze our places in the various standings of the leagues we're in. And of course, all of us who play in Roto-style category leagues know that we have to look for categories where we think we can move up easily or where we could fall back easily because of how the categories are bunched. Then you added that a way to do this analysis more effectively is to use what you called normalized standings. What are normalized standings and how do they work to help that analysis? Sure. Um, normalized standings. What the, you know? You mentioned there's gaps and there's uh, tightly bunched areas in every league. And that's I, I don't want to get lose the sight of the fact that that's what's most important. But the normalized standings, what they are, is I, I take a bunch. I take a league where there's ample leagues of similar format. You know, use the NFBC or TGFBI as an example. So that, you know, the variable of, of the league rules and trading and that sort of thing is the same. So all the, you know, it's, the variables are what the teams did within. And normalized standings just are average the, the points or the, 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 the number of points or home runs or whatever RBI across the 10 categories get the average of whatever it might be, 20, 50, 100 leagues, and see how the, the standings lay out in that manner uh it does again your standings are not going to follow that but it does give you an overview of you know in on on paper uh, you know in a vacuum where you could gain or lose to me and more importantly it give it might give you an idea of how your opponents may where the opponents may think they can gain or lose and uh, to me that to me that's as, as important as getting a little snapshot into how your opponent feels, can they gain or lose in a particular category? Because if you feel the opposite, no matter what the, no matter where you are at the bottom of a tightly bunched pack or whatever, it, it, sometimes the, your opponent just it can't gain in ratios. There's just no way. I don't care. And you feel you can, you can use that to your advantage. So that was part of the whole idea about tweeting to begin with. Uh, and and the, the category standings just kind of gives you a framework from which to to look, to understand how the different categories work. How did you go about normalizing the ratio categories, batting average on base and better leagues, uh, ERA and whip? Yeah. yeah, this is a little tough because you have to make the assumption that the number of at-bats, plate appearances in OBP, in innings, in pitching are the same in order just to do a straight average. We know that's not the case. So if you, I figure if I take ample leagues, the pluses and the minuses will kind of equal out and the, you can get a number. I mean, I could have come up with a manner, you know, we have, we have to, we have to convert the ratio to accounting stat when we do valuation. So maybe I could have done that, but I don't, I don't think it's important enough to, 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 if you start to go through that, what I've learned over the years, if you start to go through that math in an article that you're trying to keep to 1,200 words, it gets distracting. So I, I think that making the assumption that if you average enough leagues, 
that it's close enough for Jazz, I think it's it's okay. Now, in ratios, because of the 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 lower the ratio, the better. I use the reciprocal. I don't think that's I don't think that's too distracting. Uh, but yeah, so to do it, so essentially, when I'm you know by by assuming the innings pitch slash at bats are the same, I'm essentially turning batting average into the hits category, right? So I'm just yeah, I'm just making making an accounting category and it's hits. And you know, so um, and then with the pitching, I'm just making the category, you know, earn runs, but you know, kind of the the inverse of earn runs. So you built this three-year model using NFBC standings from 2018 through 2020. What did you find about the way that the categories got shaped? Right, and I've done I've done this a lot over the years because I do think it's fairly interesting, and I also do it because I think it helps plan your draft if you know how these different categories work. And it, it turns out that batting average, even though it's a ratio category, when you normalize it, it's the most tightly bunched category. So it might be hard to move in batting average by the end of the year, but the point is you don't have to move much. Now, now take this to your own standings where they may even be more bunched than than, than the average standings, now it really says that you can make some movement because, you know, if it's even more bunched than the average standings. But, you know, it, it, as far as my draft strategy goes, well, if it's kind of a two-way street. If I don't, if I can get, you know, I can get just, I can get lucky in batting average, I can also get unlucky. But it's why I don't worry as much about batting average because it doesn't take much luck to get your way up. Of course, like I said, it doesn't take much bad luck to get you down either. Uh, you know, but the other ratio categories, ERA and WHIP are also very tightly bunched. So it just, it's, you know, you know, one of my crusades is you can always gain or lose points and ratios to the end of the season. It's to me, this is just another manner to, uh, to sort of exemplify it, to, to show it. You mentioned that a big part of the value of this exercise is discovering what the perceptions of the opponents in your league have about these questions and then taking advantage of the fact that some of those percent the uh, perceptions might be a little bit off uh, you used yeah. a twitter poll to see which categories fantasy managers thought would be the tightest and therefore the likeliest to harvest some gains what did they say and how accurate was the wisdom of this particular crowd well i think it well this is where as i'll explain it's kind of it's kind of it's not that easy. I'll explain why in a sec. Sorry. So it was the first one. Uh, what what category do you think you can gain or lose the most points? And stolen bases was is thirty four percent, but it was the uh, it was at least it was ten percent uh, higher than the next best, which was home runs. So according to my data, right, stolen bases it's harder because the gaps the uh, the delta between standings places was larger and therefore it's harder to do but now you add a little game theory into it and that fewer players are needed to gain points in stolen bases not to mention you could be bunched not to, and not enough further the stolen base category itself is bunched in the middle and it, the wider gaps at the end and all those up there that use SGP, this is kind of an SGP way of thinking about it, is points gained. 
the way you figure it out, calculate it, is you, you take away the top and the bottom totals. If it's a 15-team league, you only lose second to 14th, and then there's a least squares fit, and it makes it into a straight line. But if you were to graph it, it's much more of an S-curve in that it's bunched in the middle, but in, in the gaps are up top. So, you know, if the SGP is five, it's probably closer to three and a half in the middle. So, so by saying stolen base, you're gaining and losing most points. I'm thinking that the, that the readers understand that it only takes a trade of, as we were talking about, Miles Straw, Billy Hamilton, to get those steals. You can affect the category with fewer players. Therefore, it's easier to maneuver. You know, but the data says uh, it may that might be right. It might be inefficient because you know you may need you know you might be gaining. You have to invest a lot just to gain those points. Same thing's true, of course, of saves, which shapes much the same way. You had yeah. the actual graphs in your article, and it was like the uh, the saves and steals started very high and then fell very quickly, then plateaued, and then fell again right at the end. So in the middle, it looked like all the categories were fairly tightly bunched. I know mathematically in your table that there was differences that were a little more obvious than perhaps looking at the graph might uh, might suggest in that, in that middle section. But the fact remains that one of the reasons that there is that big difference is Presumably, anybody who's got three functioning closers is going to run out to a huge lead, and if he doesn't trade from his surplus, is going to finish the year with a gigantic lead in saves, a gigantic and unproductive lead in saves, I might add, because you'd have been better off spending it somewhere else. And then there's going to be a few guys at the other end who don't have any closers or had a closer like, uh, I don't know, Kirby Yates, well, not even him. He didn't pitch a single inning this year for the Blue Jays, but there are lots of closers uh, Colomay in Minnesota. So he picks up a save or two and then is punted from the role for non-performance. Right. And so uh, if you've got Liam Hendricks and I've got Alex Colomay, you're going to have a big, huge lead at the, your end and I'm going to be way down at the end. And all, there's going to be all the guys with one closer in the middle kind of bunched together like they always are. Yeah. Now, you know, getting more thinking about draft dynamics, especially in mixed leagues. I'm sorry. Sorry. Especially in only leagues. It's you know I I don't I I I'm hesitant to give you a lot for a category I think I can improve you know easier on Fab now uh, often case that's not the case and you should just bite the bullet and if someone's offering you you know birds in hand and Liam Hendricks take it don't hope that someone gets traded and 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 you know don't hope that Grayman gets traded and you can pick up or you have Paul Sewald Sewald you know, sometimes it's better to get bird in hand. Uh, but yeah, saves is such a tricky category because people just don't want to deal for saves because they feel they can get it for free. And often that's a mistake. And I, I basically, I've been in that point where I've tried to deal saves and I just get that back. I, that's, I, I don't, I don't, I, it's, I don't want to deal for saves. Uh, I don't want to give you, I don't want to give you that much for saves because they're saves and I can get them elsewhere. And they're just such a, a fickle category. I mean, Ian Kennedy, it's the same picture he was two weeks ago, but he went two weeks without a save. You know, then he got like two in two games. So the nature of the category in that manner uh, is, is such a fickle category. But uh, the, the next one we asked about was fewest gain or lose points in hitting, and that was batting average, and that was 56%. So this tells me that, first of all, 56% of the people didn't read my stuff for the past 10 years. 
But it tells me that if you feel you can gain points in batting average, that that's a that's a place where you can potentially have a little bit of leverage over your trading partner. You may not want to tell them that, but when you design a deal, you may want to you know latently improve your batting average, and maybe maybe when they're doing the equity, they don't notice that or they dismiss it. But you know, you know that you can't because over half apparently over half the responders don't care about batting. They don't think you can move in batting average. So I thought that was pretty interesting. In that that in in that according to the data, is the most tightly bunched category. So that's it, it's interesting. It, it just tells me not to ignore it. That when I am looking to move up points, if I'm at the bottom of a tightly contested bunch, I really need to look hard for a deal where I can uh, a net advantage. And for people who don't know the reference Todd made to maybe they didn't read my last 10 years of work, you've spent quite a lot of time convincing <laughs> me and others that the idea that because we're late in the season and the denominator's big, that there's no way to make a significant jump in those ratio categories, ERA, whip, and batting average or on base. And in fact, that's not true. There's uh, when you do the arithmetic, it's not true. If you pick up a guy, if you pick up a good ERA guy and drop a bad one, you're getting you're winning both ways and you can really pull that ratio into, into line a lot quicker than a lot of people think. Right. And to be fair, to be honest, to be frank, I should, um, you need help you need your own team to do a lot of the work. You're not going to trade for a player that's going to make the big difference. He can help, but you need some of your players. You know, you need, I mentioned Brad Keller earlier. You, you need Brad Keller to, to continue to pitch well to offset some of the bad stuff that he did. Um, but you can move. Now, this is it kind of segues nicely. I asked the same questions for pitching. Which category are you likely to gain the most? And which are you likely to lose the fewest? And the answer was the same in both, ERA and WIP. Now, I had to include ERA and WIP together because Twitter only allows you four choices. But, you know, they, they kind of dovetail each other close enough that it didn't matter. But I just find that interesting. So what that tells me is um, 32.4% you're likely to gain the most. That tells me that 32.4% have followed my work. Um, and the other the other 35.1% haven't, and the others have their own opinion. Now, I'm being somewhat silly there, but no, I mean, I, I did find it interesting that I, I wonder if a different subset of responders, if someone else had put that poll out, if the answers would have been different. Because it's biased, because these people, they're my followers. So even though it's, you know, it's a, fairly large pool. I don't know why 12,000 people hear what I say. It's a fairly large pool. It's biased in that whatever reason they wanted to follow me. And it's not from my boyish good looks. And we should also caution that when you're talking about these kinds of results, it's almost like the cautionary note that you get from stockbrokers and stock pickers, where they say, you know, this is true only in a set of circumstances that might not reflect your reality. And when you're doing this kind of analysis of your own particular single league, you have to look at the categories as they are, not as the right. model suggests that they're going to be, because maybe in your league, stolen bases are all spread out like crazy and there's no bunch at all. And, and in batting average, there's only 0 0.003 from second to, to ninth, then you have to understand to look at your own categories realistically and see where your opportunities lie and where the threats lie. I mean, I'm glad because I that is I, mean, I try to do it within the piece that needs you know once you get into this discussion about normalized standings and 
something you may forget. I think it needs to be reiterated. Bottom line is each league is unto itself. You could be at the bottom of a tightly bunched group, um, and 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 therefore you can you can gain the most in, in whatever category it might be. And it kind of seg- it, it kind of brings in the other general thought in that a lot of you know just, you know the trade you should trade from a, a strength to improve a weakness. That doesn't mean always trading from a category in which you're scoring very high to improve a category in which you're scoring very low. You know, you, you've kind of mentioned it early. We've been talking about this for years. It's just kind of, you know, we sometimes forget that we have to remind people it, it, it's where you can gain the most relative. You know, if you can gain from ninth or 15 team from 11th to 14th, gain three points. All right. I'm in 11th place. That's pretty good. Well, get, you know, if you need to trade from fifth to fourth in another category, you're not, you're still trading from strength to weakness, but it's not like where I'm doing very well to where I'm not doing very well. And I think that's what people often will look at is where am I, what category am I really good in? I can afford to deal home runs. I can afford to deal steals because I've got 14 or 13 or 15 points. And that might not be the case. And uh, I think that what you need, you know, where you can gain the most from where you can lose the most is the algebra. I've also seen some writing and I've practiced this for years myself that people don't take enough advantage of trading from weakness. You know, if you're, if you're sitting on top of home runs with a 20 home run surplus, sure, you should trade it. If you're sitting at the bottom and you have 25 home runs to make up and you don't have a home run hitting team, but for one guy, he's not helping you. You're not going to gain that point with one guy. You're going to either have to acquire a bunch of of home run power to even gain one point. Perhaps your play is to take the guy, the one home run hitter you have on your roster, accept that you're going to get a one and trade him for help where you can actually make some hay in one of the other categories. No, exactly. And and you do it in all the categories, but it's more likely to be efficient in, as we talked about, saves and steals, just because often the, the difference between second and third or second to last and third to last is a lot. So you, 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 can, you may give up steals or saves and not even lose any in standings points just because the gap between the next, the next team is pretty darn big. So, I mean, yeah, you do it. I mean, you know, the caveat with home runs, someone else is saying don't heal the home runs because you're also dealing runs in RBI. Do the math, you know, do it where it helps you the most, but especially – and, you know, and, and kind of conversely, I, I'm, I'm in a league. I mentioned Chris Olson's league. I'm in a league where I'm, I'm well behind in in steals. And I keep people try to trade me steals. But it's I'm not going to I mean, it's not I'm not going to move up. I, if I move up one point, I'm going to give up five points. So to, to use the argument, that you, you know, you've got, you know, you're you're five points out of the money or whatever. And you're third to last in steals. I'm going to trade you a steals guy. Well, if I can't gain the point, but I think because one of these years we're not going to have to talk about this, but people are still in that mindset that Zola's only got three points in steals. He can win if he gets more steals. Let's trade him some steals. Well, you better trade me 50 steals because that's what I need. Exactly right. And I was wondering about wins and strikeouts, where they placed in your model and how tightly bunched they tend to be based on the model because in uh, one of the leagues I'm in, I'm in 11th spot in wins. I'm 20 wins ahead of the guy behind me. And in strikeouts, I'm second to last in that as well. I'm 124 strikeouts ahead of the guy in last. And in both cases, I can't 
pick up any ground and I can't lose any ground, I might as well trade whatever good starters I have that I can get almost anything for, right? Yeah, and, and you there's usually more of a correlation between wins and strikeouts, and maybe it's just my teams, the guys I'm drafting, the guys I gravitate towards, or maybe it is this year, maybe it's just the wackiness of how pitching, but I'm finding kind of that in, in, in several leagues where, darn, you know, with all that many wins, I expected to have more strikeouts, or with all that many strikeouts, I expected to have more wins. And it's, it's just, I, I see it on several teams. So, in my, you know, I, like I said, it could be that I happen to have three or four of the same pitchers crossing over into different leagues and affecting things, or it just could be the league is just, there's just no correlation within the league this year. That's something I always, I, I, I'm going to look at, but it's, to me, it's not worth looking at now because there's still, you know, whatever, almost, uh, you know, a very, you know, 40%, whatever it is, a very high proportion of the season, and these things can change. But as far as the, the you know the, the wins is the second most uh, striated category. It's nowhere near saves of the other categories. There, there, there is a larger um, delta between categories. But as you know, wins will always have that place where it goes 52, 52, 53, 54, 54, 55. And the teams within that range are like on a weekly basis jump up and down. And it's almost as if I – I won because the season had happened to end on a week where I was in the lead of that pack. If we had gone one more week, I may have been at the bottom of that pack and lost four points. So wins is, you know, you know, those things you never chase wins unless you have to chase wins. In Tout Wars, the guy with three points in the category and wins has 44. The guy with 12 points in the category has 54. 10 wins is 10 points. And it's pretty much like that all the way up, 45, 45, 45, 46, 49, 49, 49, 50, 51, like that. Yeah. And uh, in my experience, and I've been playing this game a long time, it's almost always like that in wins. You know, it, it absolutely is. And, you know, someone had Yusmera Petit, and they're probably, well, we're really high, but they've been uh, they've been slowly falling over the past month and a half in wins because, what, he had seven and six weeks, and he may have had one since then. And there's, there's always someone like that. There's always pitchers like that. Um, so in, in some people want to get rid of the category, which is a discussion for another day. I wouldn't, you know, I believe we should, I think we should replace it with innings pitch. You know, again, story for another day. We want to have win leagues this year. So our job is to help people, you know, figure out how to improve their wins category this year. At the end of the column, Todd, you said you're going to investigate another aspect of standings movement. What is that? And how will you be researching it? Um, I've, I've, I've talked, you know, we, we kind of alluded to it. I've talked about the um, uh, moving in ratios and that it's possible. And my my proof, if you will, has been something like the NFPC, and I believe On Roto does it too for for our Tout Wars, our our, our sponsor uh, for On Roto sponsors Tout Wars. They show you on a weekly basis where you've gained or lost points. And I'll that the last week there's always the most movement in the ratio categories. Now, that's, you know, okay, but someone who's really smart can say, all right, that's the last week. You're saying on, you know, July 29th I can move. What's the movement been since July 29th? It may have just been that that movement put the team that was ahead of the other team on July 29th. You know, what, what's the, you know, is there mo- longer-term movement? 
So what I haven't done is is captured standings at a point earlier in the season and compared to see what 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 categories is the most movement. Um, unfortunately, I was planning on doing this over the All Star break, and I my computer wasn't able. I, I did not have the bandwidth. I was away, um, but I, I I will probably capture the standings um, maybe this weekend in enough time that I can still make the argument or or do the research over two months. But the point the, the study I'm going to do is. I'm going to screenshot standings uh, a couple months with a couple months left. And then at the end to see where the most movement was and not rely on simply the most movement within the last week. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Todd Zola for Masters Ball, Rotowire, ESPN, Sirius XM Fantasy Sports Radio, and a lot of podcasts. Uh, Todd, I like to wrap up these discussions by looking at slumps, pumps, dumps, and jumps. Uh, let's start with a slump. This is a player who is struggling, but you think is worth hanging on to. Sure. And I wanted to make sure that it wasn't someone who like struggled all year. That's someone who I think just lately has been struggling. And I'm going to use a catcher because I think we're always looking to float in a different catcher. And there's actually some decent ones out there. But uh, having seen him hit a lot, I'm going to use Christian Vasquez. Is I'm going to say be a little patient. He's in a bit of a doldrums right now. He's still doing, he's going the other way. He's doing the things he normally does. I think Vasquez will snap out of it and, you know, maybe tempted by Cal Raleigh or, or some of these other catchers. Uh, don't give up on Christian Vasquez. And how about a pump? This is a player who's overachieving. You'd like to pump him up in the market and sell high. <laughs> I don't know if you're going to be able to uh, at this point. Uh, Wade Miley. And I, I keep waiting there's some players I'm waiting for the uh, you know the other shooter drop, and I've come to the conclusion it's not going to. I I can't convince myself it's not gonna to, to, with Miley. It just doesn't strike anybody out. Um, the park, the defense. I just I don't I don't understand. I don't you know maybe there's something I'm missing. But the point being, it's Wade Miley. I don't know that you're gonna be able to con- you know I don't think I I don't know that I could call you up and convince you that Wade Miley is gonna win you the league. You look at the numbers, maybe you can. So. I feel he's the answer. I just don't know how, how actionable it is. And how about a dump? That's an underachiever who definitely uh, should be replaced. This one hurts. This one hurts, PD, because I, I, I almost used it for another different answer, but I can't, I can't justify it at this point. Um, if you, you probably have already done so, but if you haven't gotten rid of Ian Happ, it's, it's now time. A couple of times, he's shown the little potential that we expect. A lot of myself included, had him for a breakout season. Uh, got hurt. Right before he got hurt, he started to uptick again, and he got hurt, and he just hasn't recaptured it. The problem, if he, he's been losing playing time to Rafael Ortega, of all people, and I know, heck, maybe the Cubs made some moves while we were talking, but you know, he's losing playing time. I cannot pump, I cannot pump a player who his own team is currently not playing. I can't justify it, so I'm going to say Ian Happ. How about a jump hitter that's a target if he's available in your free agent pool or in the trade market? <laughs> uh, we're going to die on this hill. Gregory Polanco. And um, uh, the same argument that I've been using is he hits the ball really hard. He just doesn't hit it enough. He's starting to hit it more. And actually, I mean, if you asked me a week ago, this would have looked genius. But he's already started to, to hit a little better. But I think he's going to continue. And um, I, I could get burned, but 
Gregory Polanco of the Pirates, especially uh, – geez, I was just about to say something stupid. I was about to say especially because they traded Starling Marte, but he's on he, – well, he was on the Marlins. I think Polanco will get the playing. I mean, the, the Pirates could trade somebody else, and I think the playing time is – he doesn't play every day against lefties, but it's not like Ian Happ who's getting benched regularly. And finally, how about a jump pitcher who's a target if he's available? <laughs> I've mentioned his name a couple times already. I'm back on the Brad Keller bandwagon. He's actually pitched. And I think he would, and, and the new word does a good thing. Whenever I write actually, it says, you know, don't need to, don't use the word, don't need to use the word actually. Get rid of it. Uh, he's pitched well lately. And, you, you know, you start by ERA, you sort by, you know, season-long stuff, and it's not very good. But I don't – whatever the, the time, you know, selected endpoint, insert here, he's pitched well as of late. I don't – you know, he's not going to go on a on – a, on, a, on a talk about, you know, 60-day what people – he's not going to go on a Zach Davies from last season run, but I do think that Brad Keller will, will give you uh, what you want. Sorry, in July, you know, again, selective endpoints – in July, he spun a 2.28 ERA, 1.05 whip. He's, you know, more importantly to me, he's fanned 8.5 per nine. So, you know, it, it, that's not going to carry over. But, you know, take those skills, regress the ERA to, to the expected, and it's it's not bad. Todd Zola's slump, Christian Vasquez of Boston, his pump, Wade Miley of Cincinnati, his dump, Ian Happ of Chicago, his jump hitter, Gregory Polanco of Pittsburgh, and a jump pitcher, Brad Keller of Kansas City. Todd, tell our listeners where they can keep up with Todd Zola. You can keep up with Todd Zola uh, on uh, Rotowire. We've mentioned it a couple times. Uh, we no longer have the the Sunday fantasy show, unfortunately. Football's, football season, paying the bills. But I um, I do the Rotowire Saturday show with PlayLink on the MLB Network Radio. I wish I could tell you a time but they maneuver us around the games that they're, that they're broadcasting that day. Could be one, could be four, could be seven. Um, I uh, write ESPN Daily Notes uh, several times a week. And obviously you can get me on Twitter, at Todd Zola. Happy to answer any questions you might have on the Masters Ball forum. I don't do a whole lot of Twitter. I post on Twitter all the time. I don't do a whole lot of direct answering. But you can head over to mastersball.com. Uh, free to register. I will spend all day with you on the forum if uh, if necessary. Um, old school. I just prefer to do it that manner. Uh, and I'm joined a new gym, so you can see me at my new gym if you want. You want to give out that address? Are everybody wearing a mask <laughs> in there? What's no, going on? No, but I'm a little sore. I uh, had the free training session that you get when you join a new uh, facility. And um, so I, uh, along with the general soreness of, you know, you, know, you haven't done much for, for a while. He had me doing walking with kettlebells and shifting this and lifting that and turning here. So I've got aches and pains that I normally don't have. But what did David Letterman used to say? It's a good kind of pain. It is indeed. Uh, Todd, it's been a slice. Uh, I knew it would be. It's always fun to talk with you. And uh, we'll, I'm sure we'll catch up again probably before the season's over. I hope so, PD, because, you know, anytime we can talk baseball, you know I'm willing. Todd Zola writes for Masters Ball, Rotowire, and ESPN. It appears regularly on Sirius XM Fantasy Sports Radio and MLB Network Radio. Quick break here, and then we're back with our HQ commentaries, the Minor League Minute, Frequent Flyer, and my Extra Innings comment all coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. But first, let me remind you about First Pitch Arizona to remind you how you can get a competitive edge for 2022 and have a lot of fun doing it. 
Yes, First Pitch Arizona is the 26th edition of Baseball HQ's signature fantasy baseball getaway. We're live again and in person October 14th through 17th at the Sheraton Mesa Wrigleyville West, just walking distance from beautiful Sloan Park in Mesa, Arizona. First Pitch Arizona is three full days packed with activities like fantasy workshops, drafts, and contests, seminars covering scouting, sabermetrics, and strategy, my favorite, hanging around the old fire pit and talking baseball with some of the best in the business. And of course, going to the ball games in the Arizona Fall League, featuring some of the best and brightest rising stars from the minor leagues, all from the view that you get from the best seat in the stadium, whichever seat you think that is. Tickets to games every day are just the beginning of your registration package. You also get free copies of Ron Chandler's 2022 Baseball Forecaster and Baseball HQ's 2022 Minor League Baseball Analyst. They'll be hot off the presses as soon as they're printed and on their way to you. A Thursday evening welcome reception will let you hobnob with the experts and your fellow attendees. There's food, a free Saturday lunch event, and free hot buffet breakfasts for guests at the host hotel and all kinds of handouts, instant freebies, and prizes, not to mention as many AFL foul balls as you want to run after. The First Pitch Arizona webpage is up. That's where you can get all the latest skinny on First Pitch Arizona 2021, including event schedules, registration information and discounts, and hotel information and discounts. Just go to BaseballHQ.com slash first hyphen pitch hyphen Arizona, or just go to the Baseball HQ homepage and click on the huge orange logo over there on the right-hand side. Previous attendees call it the best weekend of the year. We call it First Pitch Arizona, and let's see you there. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick David here. Time now for our regular commentaries. The frequent flyer and my extra innings comment coming right up and leading off, it's the Minor League Minute. And here with a look at St. Louis third base prospect Jordan Walker is Baseball HQ Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon. The St. Louis Cardinals' Jordan Walker has been charging up top prospect lists since making his pro debut this spring. Walker was the 21st overall pick in the 2020 draft and showed enough at the Cardinals' alternate training site that the club felt comfortable skipping rookie ball and assigned him to full season ball at Low A Palm Beach. All Walker did in his debut was slash 374 with a 475 on base percentage and a 687 slugging percentage with 11 doubles and 6 home runs and just 99 at bats, good enough to earn him an early promotion to high A. Walker hasn't been as dominant since moving up, but for the year he's hitting 339 with a 425 on base percentage and a 612 slugging percentage with 17 doubles and 8 home runs, and he won't turn 20 until next May. Walker has above-average tools across the board. Defensively, he has worked hard to improve his range and is now considered an above-average defender with soft hands and a plus arm that should allow him to stick at third base over the long term. Walker has also improved his understanding of the strike zone and, for now, uses an all-fields approach with surprising speed for his size. At the plate, Walker still tends to drift into the hitting zone, but he has a quick bat, and once he figures out how to keep his weight back and use his natural strength and long levers, he has the tools to hit 30-plus home runs on a regular basis. Jordan Walker has made as much progress as any prospect in baseball. He did not make our HQ100 this spring, but he checks in at number 38 in our midseason top 50 update. If for some reason Jordan Walker isn't already rostered, fantasy managers in long-term keeper formats should add him as soon as possible. 
For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. Rob Gordon is a member of the Baseball HQ scouting team and has his Minor League Minute here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. And speaking of scouting this week at BaseballHQ.com, in our regular feature, The Eyes Have It, scouting analyst Chris Blessing looks at a couple of rising stars, Pittsburgh right-handed pitching prospect Quinn Priester and Atlanta right-handed pitching prospect Freddie Tarnock. Chris will also be reviewing some of the prospects traded during the deadline frenzy. That'll come up Monday or Tuesday of next week. And right around that same time, Chris Blessing and Brent Hershey will discuss some of the prospects on their podcast, also called The Eyes Have It. Look for it wherever you catch your pods. It's a great, great podcast. Now it's time for the Frequent Flyer, a commentary on players who might be available in your free agent pool and who have the potential to deliver enough playing time and production to make them worth considering for a spot on your roster. Here with a look at Texas second baseman Justin Foscue is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. What do Ken Griffey Jr., Don Mattingly, and Dale Long all have in common? They are the only major leaguers to have homered in eight straight games. Dale Long was the first to accomplish that feat in 1956, and it took 31 years, 1987, for Don Mattingly, playing for the Yankees, to tie that record, followed by Ken Griffey Jr. tying the record again in 1993. Ironically, in 1986, on the 30th anniversary of setting the record, and one year prior to Don Mattingly tying his record, Long told the Chicago Tribune that someday somebody will break it and they'll forget me. Well, we at BaseballHQ.com and BaseballHQ Radio remember you, Dale Long, and your 65-year-old still unbroken record of homering in eight straight games tied by Don Mattingly and Ken Griffey Jr. So why do we bring this up now? How is it relevant to today, 2021, 65 years later? Texas Rangers former first-round draft pick, Justin Foscue, selected 14th overall in 2020, just tied Dale Long's long unbreakable record set back in 1956 by homering in eight straight minor league, not major league, games for High A Hickory. Beginning on July 9th and ending on July 28th, Foscue's midseason eight game power surge, including double diggers on July 16th, contributed nine of Foscue's current 11 total home runs in 2021. Wow! Even so, perhaps reminiscing, Mattingly once quipped, for me I looked at really as more of a hot streak than anything else. That's why 22-year-old Texas Rangers power-hitting second baseman Justin Foscue, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot, who may be worth a flyer if he is still available, and he probably is still available, in your keeper league. So is it a hot streak? Absolutely. Is it a small sample size? Definitely. No argument here. Nevertheless, it's worth noting that perhaps not long after Ken Griffey Jr. tied the eight-consecutive-game home run record back in 1993, our own Ron Chandler coined the phrase, once a player displays a skill, he owns it. On that basis, talking about his power, Foscue owns it. But what he doesn't currently own is a lot of statistics. Once again, he's played only 26 professional baseball games in the minors. But a January 22, 2021 interview on MILB's The Show Before the Show podcast, Foscue described, offensively, as in hitting, modeling his body awareness after Josh Donaldson. So perhaps you too now have awareness of dynamite 22-year-old Texas Rangers power-hitting second baseman, Justin Foscue, our frequent flyer for this week. 
For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky at BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has his frequent flyer commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Extra Innings, my comment on baseball and fantasy baseball, and this week I'd like to give you a little preview of our first ever post-trading deadline special roundtable edition, which will drop Saturday afternoon. I'll be joined by four Baseball HQ analysts and writers, co-GM and columnist Ray Murphy, Alex Becky, Jock Thompson, Ryan Bloomfield, and Matt Dodge. And there'll be plenty for us to discuss. As I speak to you now, it's about 2 o'clock in the afternoon Eastern Time on Deadline Friday. So the MLB No Waivers Trade Deadline comes up in about two more hours. As we speak, we're up to 24 completed trades, with a few of the big names still left on the marquee. So far, I classify nine of the 24 deals as major, most notably the Scherzer-Turner deal going to L.A. and Starling Marte going to Oakland. Ten more of the trades, I say they're intermediate in importance and five are just minor. Nine of the 24 deals so far involve National League teams sending their players into the American League, making this a bumper crop for American League-only league players, at least the ones who kept their fab. There are three obvious incoming difference makers. Marte, I mentioned, Anthony Rizzo, and Kyle Schwarber. Then there's a tier of a couple of maybes, Brad Hand, who might get saves in Toronto, and Tyler Anderson, a 435-120 type of guy with not a lot of strikeouts per nine, but a lot of innings, or what we in the biz call a Rick Porcello. After that, you're looking at four setup relievers. Lefty Andrew Chafin in Oakland, kind of a tricky sinker-slider guy, Modest velocity, but massive whiff numbers on his slider, and good to excellent stat cast metrics for avoiding hard contact. 203 ERA, 085 whip in 40 innings this season in Pittsburgh. Righty Clay Holmes goes to the Yankees. He's a lot like Chafin, but not as much of it. Righty Ryan Tapera goes to Chicago, an established veteran. His decimals look pretty good at 291,078. And then there's righty Yimmy Garcia, goes from Miami to Houston. His stat cast summary is not that great. Some elite fastball velocity and spin and decent curveball spin, but everything else is pretty solidly blue. And his decimals, 357-121, not totally inspiring. But you know, I can't help wondering if the pitch doctors down there in Houston have seen something in Yimmy Garcia that everybody else has missed. Right now I'm lying 6th in FAB in my AL only, and I'm really regretting that I bid more than 300 units 6 weeks ago or so to get Taylor Walls. Barring any more big namers, my best get would probably be Chafin, whom I could pair with Yusmero Pettit in the A's setup role, but I think I'm just going to hang on and see if anybody else comes over after the trading period in the post-waivers time. Five deals have gone American League to National League, nine deals National League inside National League, and five American League to American League. One of those last ones helps me. I have Jose Barrios going to Toronto, where the lack of run support that has plagued him this year in Minnesota shouldn't be a problem. It's the biggest and splashiest deadline trading frenzy I can ever remember, so I hope you'll join us on Saturday, July the 31st for our special roundtable post-deadline edition of Baseball HQ Radio. We'll discuss all the trades, Frazier, Marte, Escobar, Gallo, all the trades, with the focus on fantasy impacts for the balance of the fantasy season and on into the future for you keeper leaguers. The special roundtable edition podcast drops Saturday afternoon. I sure hope we'll see you there. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick David, and I have my extra innings commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, July the 30th. 
Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 36 of the 2021 fantasy baseball season. Of course, I want to thank our guest expert for this Friday full edition, Todd Zola from Masters Ball, Rotowire, ESPN, and SiriusXM. Todd has been a longtime contributor to the Baseball HQ Radio podcast. He's a top-notch fantasy baseball analyst and writer, and just generally a really good guy. I also want to thank our regular commentaries from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Ray Murphy. Our Minor League Minute commentator was Baseball HQ Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon. And our frequent flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. Good guys all. I'm Patrick Davitt, your extra innings commentator, the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I try to be a good guy myself. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. And remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go where you catch your pods, and if they'll let you, leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. It really does help us find new listeners, and new listeners help us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again tomorrow with our special Trade Deadline Roundtable Edition, discussing all the trades that took place this week with the focus on fantasy ramifications. That's our special Trade Deadline Roundtable Edition coming up tomorrow on the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. See you tomorrow, and for now, so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators, or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.